young South African. Louis Tazen trying to use those slopes. And this one could be very nice. Could be very nice. Oh, come to Papa. Yes! It is Tuesday, April 10th, 2012. We are coming to you live from Buffalo, New York. My name is Steve Bennett. I'm the host of the Sportscasters, and my co-host is my good buddy, Don Russ. How are you doing today, Don? Excellent. You know, I'm a little curious to ask you a few questions. Okay. First of all, did you listen to the new show at all, and or did you receive any feedback? You know, what do you think the buzz is for the new Football Nation presents the Sportscaster Show. I have not. I saw your comment on the uh, on the website, and someone responded with like a like a real technical answer to your joke. But no, I haven't received any any feedback yet. You know, it seems like they're pretty happy with it. Um, I know I was pretty happy with it. It got quite a few views. I it thought did, yeah. in the first week, and that doesn't even count people who didn't view it but chose to download it instead. And we're pretty excited about it. It's the Football Nation presents. The Sportscasters, and you can find that on www.footballnation.com. We'll talk more about that later. I guess the second thing I want to ask you, Don, is did you watch any golf this weekend? I did. I uh, missed the whole end of it, but I, I saw the I saw the uh, double eagle that we played. I saw I saw a lot of the middle of the the tournament on Saturday. I saw kind of woods fall off and uh uh. Mickelson's meltdown a little bit on uh, whatever hole that was, and what do you, I, I saw more than normal. What are your thoughts on such a big tournament being played and ending basically in the middle of Easter dinner? Well, yeah, that was strange. Like, I, it's so long. I don't know how else they would do it. I mean, there's it. It started at what eleven o'clock in the morning, something like that, or noon. Well, the leaders teed off. I think it was right around you know two o'clock or something. Yeah, you know, sixty minutes was an hour late. That's right. That's right. You know right. what I mean? And so it went until – and there was a playoff, so that's part of it. But, you know, the whole thing just does seem to be a little bit long. Uh, as I said, we are the Sportscasters. Make sure you check out episode number 13. This is episode number 14 of season two. We had Jane Levy, Lee Jenkins, and Adrian Dater on. What would you think of Dater? He was kind of a new hockey guy that was in the mix. Yeah, I hadn't heard of him before that, but he was good. All right. Um, you know what? we got a great show for you today. We have Lars Anderson from Sports Illustrated. And listen, there's going to be a theme. We have Ben Ryder, who is a baseball guy from Sports Illustrated. And we have Darian Elliott, who is a former Buffalo Sabre, played two games in goal for the Sabres in 1989, played his college hockey at Cornell, played for the Kings, played for the Red Wings. Now he's in broadcasting. He does some stuff on uh, the Versus or NBC Sports Network coverage. And he used to do... Uh, color for the Atlanta Thrashers when there was a such thing. <laughs> and he writes for Sports Illustrated as well. So three Sports Illustrated guests today, Lars Anderson, Ben Ryder, Darren Elliott. We have a book club update to do today. We are going to preview the NHL playoffs. 
We're going to do pick four. But before we get to any of that, we start things off with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. As we mentioned at the top, uh, the clip was of Louis Oosthuizen, or however you say his name. Good He's, luck with that one. I'm yeah, going to try it. a lot of vowels in it. Uh, Lots of O's. But the big winner of the weekend was Bubba Watson. Uh, he wins his first Masters, and I believe you gave me a stat off the air. It's 14 different... Uh, yeah, 14 different winners in the, four, the last 14 majors. That's that's incredible. Um I guess some people would argue that that's not good because it shows the void that ratings, Tiger Woods ratings were left. way down for this tournament this weekend. Well, I was surprised. It was actually. very good. Yeah, it's so I was surprised. And they had Phil in contention right. going into Sunday. You know, which who you would think is the second biggest star. Uh, you know, they but ratings were way down. So I learned we're really bad at picking. Yeah, we I, mean, went I guess o- when you have eight, we went over over eight. But you know, in fairness. We both had guys who were there at the end. Like I had Mickelson, and I think the U.S. Had, guy I had was up there. Yeah, somewhere. up there too. So I mean, we like I had a guy going out in the last pairing on the right. last day. Yep. He just didn't get it done, mostly because he had triple bogey at four. You know, so that's basically why you know he he only missed by two shots, and he went three over on one hole. So, uh, but yeah, we we didn't get it, and it's tough to go against the field. And there was a lot of players with really high expectations didn't play particularly well, including Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods. And I was disappointed, as I always am, with the way Tiger Woods behaved on the course. You know, all day Saturday, he's throwing clubs, he's swearing, and just being a big baby in general. And it just seems like he's chasing a guy, you know, who won 18 majors, finished second countless times, I think 19 times, you know, and was just classy. And Tiger Woods just isn't that. <laughs> and no. he proves it over and over and over again. And his act is tired with me. Bubba, but Bubba I was Watson, glad to see Watson win. He's a relatively young guy. He's 34, uh, if I do the math. Well, not quite 34. He's 33. He's two years older than me. He's a 78 born, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, he feels like he's been in golf forever. Like when I was watching it with my brother, he goes, no, he's a younger guy. And it's like, wow. He's, but I looked, he's been in it since 2001. He's and it's only pro, his fourth so. win. Took him a while to kind of break through. Yeah, I guess so. Get his game together. Now, it's interesting because i seen Richard Deitch tweet something that came way out of left field. He said something like, so nobody's going to write the story that Bubba Watson's kind of a jerk? I hadn't heard that. Yeah, I hadn't heard that either. You know, it was kind of a surprise to me. So I don't know what Richard Deitch's source is on that. And I don't mean to stir up any unnecessary controversy, but. I've seen some pictures of him when he was younger, and he maybe, I don't know, he looks like a goofball. Uh that are kind of surfacing now, like him eating an ice cream cone and stuff with somebody and just dressed kind of silly, but I haven't heard anything about him being a jerk. Yeah, he swings those pink clubs yeah. around and stuff. And that, so. That's because his father died of cancer, I believe. So Breast cancer? No, I don't think so. That, but that's usually what the pink is for, but right. maybe because it's the most recognizable color Could with be. cancer. Like what else would you, what yeah, other color I would know. you use? I yeah. don't know. All right, so that was the golf. Uh, number one for me, Ozzy Guillen. Oh, no. I got a video <laughs> playing for no reason here. Okay. Ozzie Guillen, the manager of the Miami Marlins, 
the new manager of the Miami Marlins, suspended five games, uh, basically for saying, in short, that he supports Fidel, Fidel Castro. Castro. Oops. Uh, yeah, not good, especially coaching in Miami, right? Where there's a bunch of people who got on rafts made out of milk cartons to get there yeah. to get the hell out of uh, the tyranny that you know Fidel Castro rules over his people and. You know, it's just he's one of those guys, Guillen, that just can't get out of his own way. He's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He's always saying the right, the wrong thing. And it doesn't surprise me he would be the guy. I'm a little surprised that he got suspended um, just because I don't know There's a that couple... I really think he did anything wrong, per Yeah, se. there's a couple of ways to think about it. One, uh, I saw a tweet, and I don't remember from who, so I'm just going to kind of steal the idea, that he's getting suspended – or he's he's exercising freedom of speech and getting and talking about a guy that kind of denied people of their freedom of speech and so I mean they're kind of doing what Castro did to people I mean obviously not as in a severe way but right uh, yeah I mean he does have a freedom of speech but he's also represents a corporation in in the Miami Marlins and like you said that's just the wrong place to do it if he made if he made that comment. And he was the host or the coach of Texas or somebody. Maybe that's not as big a deal, or maybe even further go further north. Like he's the host of, or coach Minnesota, of, uh, say right. Yeah, that maybe or even back in Chicago. Maybe they're like, okay, that's him being crazy, but whatever. I think part of it is his repu- reputation preceding him. You know, sure. part of it's that he's he's not a first time offender. Right. You now, part of it is he grossly misrepresented the fan base in a market that's trying to build the fan base. Now this suspension was handed down by Miami, I believe not by major league baseball. Correct. So like you said, it could be them trying to, to wrangle him a little bit, like try to avoid things like he got in trouble with in Chicago, but before they get worse, but it's going to be exciting because as we're going to talk later with Ben Ryder, you know, this team is going to be the subject of the franchise showtimes 24 seven, like baseball series, so, you know, he's very Rex Ryan-ish in terms of, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. his personality on camera. So be interesting to see, but five games and uh, probably deserved it. But I'm, I'm a little surprised that, that it happened. A little surprised. My second thing this week is baseball-related as well. The Dodgers, who just got bought and sold for $2 billion. Well, it turns out the guys who bought them don't have $2 billion. <laughs> uh this is uh, the article is on Deadspin, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, who reports for the New York Times, said the chief backers behind the Dodgers ownership do not exactly have the money. Instead, they anticipate they will borrow money to purchase it, but they haven't exactly secured that money to borrow yet. Wow! So it, it's not, I don't know how do you buy a team for two billion dollars with big giant gaping loopholes like this? Yeah, and I mean. It's it's a bunch of people, right? I mean, how much money do they have? I have no idea. But it says the lead, the lead man behind the sale, Guggenheim Partners CEO Mark Walter, apparently is expecting to use some money from his insurance group to pay. But as Sorkin the, says, using insurance money, which is typically supposed to be invested in simple, safe assets, to buy a baseball team, which is the ultimate toy for the ultra-rich, seems like a lawsuit waiting to happen. So, I mean, none of this has happened yet, and they're kind of... This is as far as the article is the news is really gone is just that they don't have this money. But 
it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because as as they pointed out, Walter might argue that buying this team is a really, really smart investment. Right. The previous owner, whose name is slipping my mind right now, uh, Frank McCourt, McCourt, spent less than $500 million on the team and turned around and sold it, sold it for $2 billion. Right. So they might be a good investment. And they have a huge television contract that they're going to negotiate. Right. So it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. But, I mean, they basically bought a, a team with, with not enough money. So, I mean... Why even have a price tag if you don't have it anyway? <laughs> That's America, I guess, right? Yeah. Always buying, buying stuff with the money we yeah. don't have. All right. Uh, I got to follow up to a story last week. One of my three things was the huge Joey Votto contract that the Cincinnati Reds uh, gave out. We're going to talk about that contract a little bit more with Ben Ryder later in the show. But the interesting thing is, is the Reds are not done spending money. Um, the report came out today that they signed second baseman Brandon Phillips to a four-year 27 million dollar deal well that's what they had signed him to before the um, 2008 season and today they extended that contract and the total value of his new contract is 72.5 million dollars so he went from being a 27 million dollar player to a 72 million dollar player and um, he's 31 years old he's hit at least 17 home runs in each of the past six seasons his career best is 300 with 18 homers and 82 RBIs. I just think that for you're going to hear Ben Ryder later say that the Reds might be the smallest market in baseball. Seems like they're really recklessly spending money. It almost feels like they're like going all in here in a way. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, I wonder what the consequence is going to be. Yeah, maybe they know what we talked about last week, just how weak the National League is this year. Maybe if they're going to make a splash this year is the one to do it. But like you said, it is a little bit reckless, especially for such a small market team. Absolutely. My last thing is a really short point, but I figured since I beat him up two weeks ago, I have to acknowledge it. But the Mets are 4-0. Uh, yeah. Right now, that puts them three games ahead of the Phillies. So just play three games better than them the rest of the way, and, and you're all set. Now, I don't obviously think they hold on to this, but I figured since I beat him up, I'd acknowledge their good start. Yeah, it's really interesting to see the Mets. I mean, they swept the Braves, who they've had a lot of trouble with historically the last bunch of years. So that's got to give them some some positive enforcement. And also, you know, Johan Santana, who pitched an opening day, pitched really well, only pitched five innings. And they did this all while uh, the Yankees kind of had a real slow start. I think they got their first win last year. Yes, they, they one did. One and three. So. Yeah. So they get a couple of uh, headlines on the back pages. And sure. they get some... Uh, they get to get things going in the right direction here for a second, and we'll see how it works out. But, you know, I still probably wouldn't call them a, a <laughs> playoff contender. 158 more to go. We'll have to see. You know, we'll have to see what Ben Ryder thinks about them later um, because, you know, they were interesting here. This and, and that's, I think, something that I worried about the Mets all season is would they be interesting at all? So, right, right. you know, at least they're off to a start here where they're a little bit interesting. So, All right, my uh, third thing today, Lamar Odom Kardashian and the defending champion Dallas Mavericks have parted ways. Uh, Odom has been a disaster uh, ever since he's been to Dallas. He's gotten into it with Mark Cuban a couple times, reportedly uh, halftime at his final game on Saturday night. Uh, Cuban criticized o- Odom, wondering if he was going to, you know, try, basically. <laughs> uh, there's a really interesting story on ESPN Dallas-Fort Worth by a guy that I didn't know um, beforehand. Um, 
but uh, he's a blogger on that website, and his name is Tim McMahon. And he writes that basically Lamar Odom is going to go down as one of the most disgraced athletes in the history of Dallas sports. Wow. You know, just didn't try. I mean, he made $8.6 or $8.9 million in Mark Cuban's money this year, and they're going to just make him inactive for the last 11 games of the season. Wow. And the reason they're doing that is because it gives them potentially a chance to trade him in the offseason. I don't know who's going to want him, who wants a professional athlete that doesn't want who to doesn't play. want to play, doesn't right. want to try. I mean, maybe he is like a little bit like Sean Avery, who seems to only work with the New York Rangers. Maybe he only works with the Lakers. You know, maybe it makes sense for him to go back there. But – how embarrassing, you know, just he, he left the team for 10 days for quote unquote personal reasons. I still don't know what they are. <laughs> um, and he's on TV every week with that wife who's an embarrassment as it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's just, oh, man. I mean, this is a guy a year ago won the six man award in the NBA and got to play for Team USA in the world championships. I mean, and look where he is now. Yeah, not good. All right, that's going to do it for three things today. Uh, like I said, we're going to interview Lars Anderson, Ben Ryder, and Darren Elliott. We're also going to update the book club, talk about the NHL playoffs, and do pick four. But right now, we're going to take a quick break and come back with Lars Anderson from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. Do, 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 do. We come from St. Paul and we sure are the real stuff. Our team is the cream of the college is great. We fight fast and furious. Our team is injurious. Tonight, Carlton College will sure meet its fate. Our next guest is from Lincoln, Nebraska, and is a graduate of St. Olaf College. He also earned a master's degree from the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia. Today, he is a staff writer at Sports Illustrated and SI.com, where he is the magazine's main sports writer. He also regularly covered college football and authored many profiles for SI's commemorative division. He is the author of five books, including his most recent, The First Star, Red Grange, and The Brainstorming Tour that launched the NFL. He is making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to one of SI's most talented storytellers, Lars Anderson. How are you doing today, Mr. Anderson? Thank you so much for being or for having me on. I'm a little flummoxed after hearing the St. Olaf fight song, which I have to confess I haven't heard in over a decade. So uh, thank you for that. This brought back a lot of great memories of being in Northfield, Minnesota. Well, you know, it's funny because that's what we do. I mean, we always like to bring our guests on to their fight songs. And when I seen that you were from St. Olaf, I was a little worried. Am I going to be able to find that one? Am I just going to have to play Columbia? You know, that kind of a thing. And then the funny thing I found is all the versions of it I could find were people singing it. I couldn't find, like, usually I found, like, a pep band playing it, you know. So that was that was different. That was fun. So I'm glad you, glad you enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Speaking of enjoying, you know, I totally enjoyed your column last week uh, in, the, in the magazine about Niles Davis. And I thought it was just so good. And it's so interesting because... In the time that it took for me to write to you and tell you I love that story and to reach out and see if we could talk about it on the show, the story has almost completely changed with what's happened at Arkansas. And I noticed you mentioned on Twitter that that's something you're going to cover in this week's magazine. But how unique of a situation is this for you to have a feature run on, I guess, on Monday night it comes out, you know, Tuesday at midnight. I always download my magazine onto the iPad. 
And by that next day, the story like totally changed in a way. Believe it or not, it, it happened to me very recently as well. I did a uh, four five page feature on Cam Newton in the middle of his uh, Heisman winning year, and uh, by the time the story was out, and I either on Thursday or Friday, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with Cam, uh, a lot of time with uh, Cecil, Cam's father, and by the time uh, the story really had gotten into the gotten, the magazine had gotten into mailboxes uh the entire the entire narrative had had shifted on for, away from cam's exploits on the field and in sort of his his backstory of just going to bling college to uh going to his dad and in the, in the pay for play allegations and did auburn offer money for cam newton so the whole thing uh the actual piece itself was was obscured and in, in much the same fashion as uh the, the nile davis story has been obscured a little bit um you know i was just down in arkansas you know about 10 days ago or so and uh and spent time with coach petrino and uh, he was very gracious in in opening up his entire program to me just for one day. Um, you know, I was in the, I was in the uh, football offices pretty much all afternoon. And even though practice was closed the day that I was there, he he allowed me and a SI photographer to attend. And of course, no no, no <laughs> I, I could I couldn't have any clue that I was standing in the midst of this scandal that was about to erupt. And um, and I was with Coach Petrino again for maybe 20, 25 minutes in his office, and and just given the the story, we just focused on on Nile Davis. But uh, but I'm sure um, I'm sure his uh, his female employee that was on the back of his bike was was around there somewhere, and uh, little did I know or anyone else that uh, he was going to be getting in the, get in the uh, motorcycle accident, uh, be less than honest about it and now just be on administrative leave and wondering whether or not he's going to have a job next week. You know, it's funny because in the story, at the very end, kind of in parentheses, you mentioned that he was involved in a motorcycle accident, is taken to the hospital, is expected to make a full recovery. And yeah, given, well, given our deadline, see, I, I filed the story on Sunday morning, and the accident wasn't until Sunday night. And so that was actually a late edit Add just to uh, we you know and, and I I talked with the college football editor Gene Menez about where's the best place to put this because we need to put it in there somewhere but we didn't want to break up the narrative flow of the story and so we just sort of you know shoehorned it in there at the end as inelegant as it was we felt that it had to be in there and we and you know because we only we went on what. Uh, we knew at the time, and Monday night, it was that he was going to make full recovery. You know, he's even going to come back to spring practice. Everything is going to be hunky dory for him after he gets, you know, back on his feet again. And then the whole thing just unraveled so quickly. And and that's kind of what I'm writing about this week. And it's going to just be a very short piece and scorecard, sort of summarizing what happened and, uh, you know, why he's in, in danger of losing his job. But I, I think ultimately he will retain his job um, basically because he's a proven elite coach and uh, the, the, the job at Arkansas is not an elite job. And Arkansas will never get another coach as good as Petrino. And I think they're going to do everything in their power to, uh, to even though you even though you may not care for the guy, uh, they're going to do everything in their power to retain him because he's so successful and and 
you know, he's got them right there contending for the. It, it would appear, at least on paper, that he'll, he'll they'll be right there contending for the national championship this year. Yeah, and and that was what I was going to say next. You know, it couldn't have come at a worse time for that program because, as you mentioned in the, in your piece, they are so close to being a team that could win the national championship next year. Do you think that that is going to be the main determining factor that if they do ultimately retain them, that they don't want to disrupt what could be their best chance in however long at a national championship? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. And just the the money that he brings in. If, if you if you go to Fayetteville, you'll see almost every ounce of <laughs> of the stadium, the, the, the facilities there. They're being upgraded. And they would not be being upgraded if, if Petrino hadn't been twenty-one and five the last uh, three years. So um, you know, and that uh, success brings money into the school, and that brings in that creates better facilities. It, it just you know, and that helps with recruiting. And so it's just uh, it, everything is tied to winning. And Petrino is is proven that he can do that. And so I, I think you know, and, and we're talking on uh, Monday afternoon here. Right. I, I think probably by the end of the week. Maybe Thursday that uh, the administ- that the athletic director Jeff Long will announce that um, you know Petrino is going to be allowed to come back you know under these conditions. Maybe he'll suspend him for a game or two, but you can be sure he won't be suspended for the early season Alabama game because everybody in Fayetteville is already pointing to that game, and, and I think it's even in late it's in late September. It's it's very early as that is sort of a, a touchstone game for them next year and. If they could somehow beat Alabama, and that will be at home in Fayetteville, then that will really uh, signal that this team is is ready to compete not only for an SEC championship but also a national championship. Let's talk about Davis for a second because the column was fascinating, and you know, he reminds me, or he, he, I I think that him and Dominique Whaley, who is a running back for Oklahoma, they're going to be really interesting this year because they're both guys who are going coming off of injuries. They're going to be asked to really contribute for their team and I wonder if you think can Davis ever shake away the injury prone tag at this point yeah absolutely uh you know he as I mentioned in the story he recently had a a bone density test done and uh, it's a really complicated uh long test and uh it was revealed that his bone structure and, and, and the core of his bone strength is uh above normal. That was very, you know, comforting for him to hear. And if you go back and look, he's he has he's broken his ankle three times. Uh and so that of course that's disconcerting to hear. But if you go back and kind of analyze each one, each injury was sort of sort of a freak injury where he either got one, he got horse collared in a practice, in a, and a guy fell on the back of his ankle and broke it. Another one, he got rolled up on, and so you know, you just those things just happen in football. And he, he's also broken a collarbone, um, but uh, yeah, he needs to put together a you know a, a an injury free year to really be a high draft pick. And he's got all the measurables. You know, he ran a four three three forty. Recently, so that, that made him the fastest guy in the Arkansas team. I think he benched more than everybody but two other guys on the team. So he's almost the fastest and the strongest guy on the team, and he's just a—he's a physical freak. And um, you know, I know—I know he is—he's got the injury thing in the back of his mind, and he—you know—he freely admits that, and he knows that he can't play scared. And uh, I'm, I'm sure they're going to hold him out of all scrimmages this fall or this spring, as they should. 
uh, even though he's a hundred percent right now. And um, you know, when we were talking after practice, uh, his ankles are so tightly wrapped it almost looks like he's limping. But he's not limping. It's just he's got so much wrap on his ankles uh, that doesn't it doesn't really hinder his mobility at all in the field. But they're just really tightly wrapped. They're as, as tightly wrapped as anyone's I've ever seen. And I've been doing this eighteen years at the magazine. Um, but I, I think I think. Um, you know, once he gets going early in the year, I, I, I think he'll be fine. I really do. And and if he puts together a, a big senior year, I would envision him being a, a first-round draft pick. You know, the SEC in the last couple of years has produced some really great high draft pick running backs. I mean, just a few years ago, Mark Ingram was a first-round Heisman Trophy winner. You know, Tony Richardson seems to be like he's going to be that same kind of guy this year. Where does he compare to those guys, the last couple of big SEC running backs? I think he's right there. I think he's right there with uh, – I think he's even better than Richardson if he's healthy. He's better than – I'm sorry, he's better than Ingram. Uh, Trent Richardson was just a fabulous back at Alabama last year, and, and if, uh, if, if RG3 hadn't, hadn't come on strong at the end of the year, uh, Richardson would have won the Heisman Trophy. Um, Giving Alabama its second Heisman winner in three years, um, but I, I think Nile has got he's got all the talent in the world, and uh, you know, it, and and that showed in the 2010 season. I think over the last seven games, he faced some of the best defenses in the country, and he averaged over 150 yards a game. And just it was he's always a threat to go the distance. You're not going to arm tackle him. He can run between the tackles. He's really got everything you want in the back. He's got ideal size and speed. And, uh, again, it's just a matter of, of putting together a uh, an injury-free season. You know, you really wear some interesting hats at SI, and we love Sports Illustrated. I mean, I think that Sports Illustrated has the deepest bench in sports journalism. You know, we could do a show for probably nine straight weeks and never repeat a guy and just still be repeat just or a lady and still be talking to just great talent. And you do so many different things there. I mean, we talked for the first 10 or 15 minutes here about college football, but you also do a lot of NASCAR. You know, you've written books about the national football league. What really, what do you like to do best? Is there something that you like to do best or, you know, uh, you know I, I enjoy doing just long, long form, Features. Uh, last year, I did a, a cover story on the on the Tuscaloosa tornado, and um, that was um, a very rewarding piece to do. I uh, got letters from all around the world uh, from that story, just how uh, Tuscaloosa was rebounding from this devastating uh, tornado. Uh, the long snapper at Alabama, Carson Tinker lost his girlfriend, and I, I detailed it. <clears throat> Excuse me, I detailed the story of how uh, of how she was killed in the tornado, and uh, you know, hearing from people in Japan who said that who had just experienced a tsunami, and um, you know, like, telling me just how they really could relate to what the people of Tuscaloosa were going through. I uh, got a long note from Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama just saying, you know, what's uh, what that story meant to him and, and, and to all the people of Alabama. And I'm I'm actually based in Birmingham, Alabama, and I teach a sports writing class at the University of Alabama. And I was teaching it last year as well when the tornado hit, and it took me several days to find out that all my students were okay. So that it was a very personal story for me. 
And uh, it was a story in which I actually did something very rare for me, and that's uh, sort of delve into first person for a little bit in the in the piece. But um, I mean, I, I just I like doing stories like that, and uh, you know, I, I enjoy doing uh, motorsports. I, I think it's good to do more than just just have more than one beat. It keeps you fresh, and um, it's good to you know. I I, I too I, I think. I think Sports Illustrated has some of the best writers in the country, you know, sports or not. And uh, I learned so much just from reading other writers and, and talking to them and their approaches to stories and, and how they reported stories. And in my class at uh, Alabama, I'll try to have a, an SI writer or, or a writer of some sort join us via Skype, you know, in, in, in every class session and just, you know, ask them about what their approach is to to sports writing and, and, and we'll break down sort of one story that I'll have the students read ahead of time and we'll almost go over it line by line, like, okay, how'd you find this? How'd you come up with this line? And, you know, really the only way to learn how to do this is to experience it. And so it, it's, it, it's hard to teach, but it's also... You know, just sort of, just sort of relating your own experiences, and it's uh, that's been rewarding for me. And I, I know there's a couple other staffers uh, like George Dorman and uh, John Wertheim who have who have taught classes uh, in the in the recent in, in in recent years as well. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you don't have much trouble filling that class. <laughs> no, it's uh, it, I think it's one of the most more popular classes in the uh, in the communications department at Alabama, and they're great. They work around my schedule. Uh, you know, I'm. I, I really don't ever know where I'm going sometimes until Monday, and usually I have to be somewhere on Wednesday. But I usually know I'm going to be around on Tuesday nights, and that's when the class is. And so, uh, it's been good. Uh, the the first year I think we had 14 students, and this year it's uh, they had to limit it I think to 18 or 19 just because it gets a bit unwieldy. Um, Last year, I took the class out to Talladega Super Speedway, wow. which is uh, in Alabama. And, uh, you know, just because I've been covering NASCAR for so long, I've got great relationships with a bunch of the drivers. And so we took, student, took, the, took the students out there, and we had about 45 minutes with Tony Stewart, about an hour with Dylan Hart Jr., um, met with Kurt Busch. Um, Chris Devota, who does NASCAR for Fox, we met with her. We met some with some NASCAR officials, and so they really got a kick out of it. And, and the thing is, that, uh, I, just, I talked to uh, Tony afterwards, and he was just he loved it because it was just something different, you know. And uh, so it, it was interesting. Just instead of we didn't really interview Tony, I, I wanted to get from Tony's perspective, what is it about reporters that really you know, upsets you. What what is right. what's the best way to approach you? What's the best way to interview you? What's the what what what's uh, what technique techniques would you use if you're a reporter? So it was sort of you know it was just a sort of fascinating discussion to do that. And just uh, last week, I took the class out to um, Barber Motorsports Park, which is right outside of Birmingham, and that's uh, where the IndyCar guys were racing. And so we met with Elio Castanevas and and uh, Rubens Barrichello and Tony Kanaan and, and some other drivers. And, again, I think the students got a real kick out of it. Wow. You know, forget Newhouse and Syracuse. All the kids who want to study communications in the next couple of years, they're going to be coming to Alabama so they can take this class. It's like the best thing <laughs> I've ever heard of in my life. You know, I want... Yeah, you know, I, I try to, again, I mean, when you're teaching, I, I try to get them out in the field as much as possible. And, 
Tomorrow we're going to have uh, Sarah Patterson join us, and Sarah is the head coach of the University of Alabama women's gymnastics team. Last year they won the national championship, and, and this year they're ranked number two in the country, and, and they've already qualified for nationals, which is in, I think, two weeks in, in Duluth, Minnesota. And so we're going to have her in and do a mock press conference. And, again, the idea is just to, if we're in class, try to create uh, a real-life sort of, you know, experience for the students. And I try to do as much as I can to get them out of class and take them to sporting events and, and um, you know, just try to get as much real-world experience as possible. The sportscasters are here for the very first time with uh, Lars Anderson from Sports Illustrated, one of the many players on Sports Illustrated's very deep bench. Um, fascinating stuff about the class, and I would talk about it all day with you, but before I let you go, I want to do a little bit of NASCAR because we don't get to do it that often on the show. But I read your, your in preparation for this, I read your article in the, um, let's see, February 27th edition of the magazine, kind of previewing the NASCAR season. And you had mentioned about how, you know, Tony Stewart and uh, Jimmy Johnson have dominated this, but you thought that maybe Casey Kane and some of the younger drivers are, are poised to make a charge. After seeing a, a few races here, well, I know they were off for Easter, but they've uh, run Daytona. They've been, I think, in Las Vegas, maybe a couple others. Where do you see the Where do you see the season right now? Do you still stick with uh, where you started? That Jimmy no, Johnson. No, I, I definitely backtrack. I'm okay. backtracking from that statement. Uh, we, you know, Casey was a, a sort of a, he was going to be a fresh face this year at, at Hendrick Motorsports, and Hendrick is the dominant team, and it was going to be the first time that Casey was in a car that was that appeared to be capable of winning the championship. Well, the season so far could not have gone any worse for Casey. He's had mechanical failures. He's had failures on pit road. He's made driver mistakes. So he's already pretty much out of it. And I mean, from where I sit, it, it looks as if um, the, the, the fastest cars seem to be at Hendrick Motorsports, uh, Casey Kane notwithstanding. Um, to me, I think Jimmy Johnson, who who didn't win the championship last year but won the previous five, I think he's going to be the guy to beat. Uh, probably the most compelling storyline through the you know the first uh, first part of the season has been the emergence of Dylan Art Jr. Uh, Jr. is riding I think 130 130 race winless streak, but um, he has gotten closer this year. He's had a couple top five finishes. He's currently second in points. I don't think he's been this high in the points in over five or six years. And he suddenly he's looking like things are finally clicking for him, and it looks like he has what it takes to be a legitimate championship contender. And that would be a huge, a huge story for NASCAR just because NASCAR's uh, TV ratings and attendance have been slipping uh, in the last, for the last five years consistently, and, and the economy, the economic downturn is, has hurt NASCAR disproportionately because of the median income level of the NASCAR fan is a little bit lower than NFL fan and, and NBA fan. So they're not traveling to events as much, but if you get if Dale Earnhardt Jr. becomes relevant again, that just will lift sort of the entire sport back up because he is just so immensely popular. He's been named the most popular driver, or voted the most popular driver of the year for eight straight years, I think, and he hasn't even sniffed a championship in eight years. So uh, that that would be uh, good news for NASCAR, and and uh, that may be the next sort of big. A NASCAR story we do in the magazine if Junior can keep it up over the next few weeks. You know, I've, I went to a few races in the mid-90s with my uncle, 
And it seemed like what made them great was the big stars in the sport, who at the time were probably Earnhardt and Gordon, Earnhardt Sr. What made it great was that half of the crowd loved those guys, then the other half equally despised them. And yeah. it created great rivalries in the stand. Now with Junior, it seems like he's been completely loved, but nobody has taken the time, I don't think, to dislike him as much because he hasn't been a factor in competition. If he's going to yeah. be a winning driver, can he create that same kind of passion on both sides? That is maybe what made NASCAR the fastest growing sport. No, in I mean, you, you, yeah, I, I, I really get what you're saying, and, and NASCAR doesn't have sort of uh, that that dichotomy anymore, unless you could have like Kyle Busch is, is someone who NASCAR fans absolutely hate. And he is, you know, this sort of black knight now of, of NASCAR. And he's off to kind of a slow start as well. But I expect him to sort of get back up to speed here over the next few weeks. And a big problem, I think, and this is something that NASCAR doesn't really talk about very much, big problem has been not only Jimmy Johnson winning all these championships, but it's that, it's that Jimmy Johnson doesn't inspire either, either adoration or animosity. He's just kind of there. And so it is, I think his dominance has just killed the sport. You know, it's just, he's not the most dynamic guy in the world. I've written stories on him. I've written cover stories on him where I've tried to explain how he actually is a really interesting guy. He used to live in a trailer park and he's somebody worth um, respecting and not, maybe not rooting for, but, but worth, you know, looking into. And it's just, for whatever reason, he does not stir the passion the way uh, Earnhardt Sr. did or the way Gordon, you know, when he won Talladega several years ago, he, thousands and thousands of fans threw beer cans onto the track. You know, you just, you don't see that sort of passion uh, with NASCAR anymore. And, and, I, and I think you're exactly right. There's just, there, are, there aren't drivers who inspire uh, as much uh, feeling and passion either way, good or bad, as there were in the, in the, in the mid-90s when you had this amazing growth spurt in NASCAR. You know, I was listening to what you said about how hard you tried with, with Jimmy Johnson, and it seems like HBO tried too with the 24-7 program, and I was so surprised that they didn't do that again. You know, and in hockey, it's it's worked. Hockey, maybe another fringe sport like NASCAR, where 24-7 was super successful the first year. They brought it back for a second year. I already heard they're going to do it a third time. Why do you think it didn't work for HBO and NASCAR or you know, was the plan that's, all along? That, that's, a, that, that's a good question, and uh, I actually thought it was a pretty compelling show. I loved it. Um, yeah, and, uh, and and I wish they would, you know, focus on other drivers, too. But I, I, that was a decision that HBO made. I mean, it, obviously, ratings drive that thing, and if uh, if it yeah. didn't get the eyeballs, then they weren't going to renew it. I mean, that would be my guess. And, and again, I, I think... A lot of people just were like, well, it's Jimmy Johnson, you know, who cares? And so why even bother to, to get into it, you know? And so uh, that, that, that's, that could be my, that's only, that's only a guess, but that's, uh, that's what I think probably happened there. All right, the Sportscaster is finishing up our time here with Lars Anderson, who you can find on Twitter, at Lars Anderson SI. You know, let's get you out of here on this, and I wanted to ask you this. I mentioned that, you know, I was able to read your column at midnight on Tuesday, and I always download the magazine on Tuesday nights at midnight onto my iPad. And I just wonder what you think about the magazine and how it translates to the iPad and how important you think the iPad is to the future of Sports Illustrated and magazines in general. 
I think it is the future of our of our magazine, and, and uh, our editor Terry McDonald has has pretty much uh, has said that he, he's devoted an immense amount of time and resources into uh, developing the magazine for the iPad, and and I, I know you can you can get so much more content with the iPad, and you know I, I'd be curious as to what your thoughts are. Do you, do you enjoy do you, do you enjoy accessing the magazine through well, that medium? I absolutely love it, and let me tell you a few few reasons why. One. It doesn't come in my mailbox until Thursday. So that means before I go to bed on Tuesday, I can read a little bit of it. Another thing I love, the the illustrated part is unbelievable, especially with the iPad 3 and the new resolution on the screen. The, the magazine comes to life in a way that it just can't on paper. Um, and another thing I love about it, like you said, is the extra content. Um, the videos that they can put, we get more pictures than in the magazine. Um, we get back columns. They always usually include one from the vault type column, which I always love reading. And I love the way I, I love it. I, I couldn't say enough about it. I absolutely love it. Well, good. Yeah, that that, that makes me uh, that makes me happy to hear that because, like like I said, I know that uh, a lot of people with uh, who get paid a lot more money than me that make really important decisions, uh, believe in the future of, of the magazine being in the iPad. And so, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Well, I enjoy that. And I enjoyed this so much. Thank you. I can't say enough. I could do this all day. Thank you very much, Lars. And, uh, hopefully we can do it again in the future sometime. If you enjoyed it. Yourself. You bet. Anytime. Anytime. It's my pleasure. It's been fun talking. All right. Thanks, bud. All right, I want to thank Lars Anderson for making his sportscaster's debut. Wow, I want to go to the University of Alabama and take that class, I'll tell you what. <laughs> um, we're doing the Book Club update a little bit earlier in the show than we normally do because we're going to do our hockey stuff later, and we're going to do that together. So I want to mention a few things. First of all, remember, we have two Book Club books of the month this month. The first one is My Years Coaching Tiger Woods, The Big Miss by Hank Haney. Uh, it's interesting to follow Hank on Twitter. He's just at Hank Caney because you know people are always asking him now about pretty much every little thing Tiger Woods does, and he's pretty opinionated on it. And I'm really enjoying this book, and I'm enjoying it because, like I said last week, with each passing page, I hate Tiger Woods a little <laughs> bit more, and I love to hate Tiger Woods. The second book club book of the month this year is Don't Put Me in Coach, My Incredible NCAA Journey from the End of the Bench to the End of the Bench by Mark Titus. Uh, I am pretty far into this book. Um, I already finished his freshman year. I'm into his sophomore year. Here's the thing about this book. Mark tries really hard to make it funny. Right. Okay. And a lot of the times it's funny, but other times it's not, (laughs) you know, it's almost like, I don't know, maybe The Simpsons is like this, where there's a ton of jokes in each episode. Sure. And they don't all work. Family Guy does that, too. You know what I mean? Okay, Family Guy's going to be another good example. You'd know better than me. But, you know, like, I've given Don credit the last couple weeks because he's come on the show and tried to be funny. (laughs) It's hard to be funny. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's really hard to be funny. And um, for that reason, I give Mark a lot of credit. This is his first book. And he's going for it, and his style is in there, and his voice is really distinct. You know, I think if Mark Titus wrote another book and he wrote it with his voice, I'd be able to pick it out right away. 
because his voice rings really true in the book. So I like it. Like I said, sometimes I roll my eyes at a couple of the things he says because it's like a corny joke. But you know what? Name someone who every joke hits. I mean, I don't know. Is, right, no. is every joke hit for Chris Rock? I mean, he's one of the funniest guys there's ever been, right? He would probably tell you no. So Right. And I mean, like if I think of what my favorite movie of all time, comedy movie of all time, might be Dumb and Dumber. There's some dumb jokes in that. Sure. You know what I mean? So I don't think comedy – comedy's maybe like baseball where, you know, if you're hitting 400, you're doing good. And he's probably hits a little bit better than that. So – Still, I recommend the book, and I'm excited to talk to Mark about it. All right. Last thing for this week's book club. Now, there's probably not going to be much you can do about it because the book isn't released until next Tuesday, um, the 17th. But a game or a book passed our desk called Game Over, Jerry Sandusky, Penn State, and the Culture of Science. And it's written by... Two guys. One guy's name is Bill Moshi, and one guy's name is Bob Dvorak. And they're both from Pennsylvania. They both have spent time writing for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, which is the main newspaper in Pittsburgh. It's not a huge book. It's about 200 pages. Uh, They probably rushed to get it together. These guys are going to be on the podcast next week to talk about it. Um, It's going to be interesting because we've been talking quite a bit on this show about a similar book that Joe Poznanski's writing, these guys have beat him to the punch. Poznanski's book is supposedly still quite a ways away. Um, but if you get to the bookstore, which happens a lot with books, sometime this weekend, and it's there already, and you want to pick a copy up, do it. Again, it's called Game Over, Jerry Sandusky, Penn State, and the Culture of Silence. I'm going to do my best to read as much of it as I can this week. Uh, we got some other stuff going here with some other books, so it's a tough month. And I've been trying to read some of Jane Levy's book on um, uh, Sandy Koufax, which I picked up. So I got a lot of different things to read, but these two guys will be on with us next week. So uh, look forward to that, I guess. Sure. All right. We will be right back with uh, Ben Ryder from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. <laughs> Our next guest is from South Orange, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Yale University. Today, he is a staff writer for Sports Illustrated, where he covers baseball, football, and spent the summer of 2010 covering the World Cup soccer tournament. He often writes the Inside Baseball column at the beginning of the magazine, and you can find his writing on SI.com, where he most recently previewed the National League West. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Ben Ryder. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm good, Steve. I'm a, little, I'm a little disturbed by how much you know about me already. <laughs> well, you know, a little research goes a long way. You know, actually, to be honest, that was one of the hardest intros I've ever written. I couldn't barely find anything. SI doesn't have a bio on you. There's not much information <laughs> on your Facebook. Your Twitter is limited. So I had, a really, I had a really scratch and claw just to get that. Well, you know, I like to be a kind of a man of mystery here. I guess you've broken down some of the walls I've put up. That was a pretty good job right there. So we're excited to have you on the show today. Um, let's just do it. We've got a lot to talk about. I want to start with baseball and get to some other stuff too. You mentioned that you spent some time out in our neck of the woods in Buffalo, New York. Maybe we can get to that later. But 
Um, let's start with baseball, and I guess the very first thing I want to ask you is, you know, you spend all this time during spring tr- spring training, and you know, there's a lot of writing out there about what everyone thinks, and then finally games are played. And I guess what I want to ask you just is, what surprised you? Three game. I mean, it's a very sh- small sample, obviously, but I'm sure there's something that surprised you in that first weekend. There are a lot of things that surprise me. I don't think that we should you know, make any conclusions whatsoever, even if we happen to be Red Sox fans, about what happened over this weekend. Um, however, one thing that I kind of struggled with, I think a lot of people did in looking forward to this season, is how to treat the Phillies. You know, the Phillies have obviously the three aces at the top of the rotation. All of them are going to end up in the Cy Young discussion. But as I made my expert picks, you know, I, I really almost, uh, did not pick the Phillies to even win a wild card. I have the Marlins in the NL East. Just looking at their lineup, it is simply not good. Obviously, Ryan Howard is still recovering from his torn Achilles. Um, that's a problem. But I think that we saw, even in this three-game uh, start, that this team can have a lot of trouble scoring runs. They only scored six runs. It's not like they were you know, facing a great pitching staff in the Pittsburgh Pirates. A real problem for them is going to be the absence of Chase Utley. We don't know what the problem is with Utley. I mean, we know that he has this degenerative cartilage condition in both knees. That's not the type of thing that gets better. We have to remember that Chase Utley is always somewhat underrated. Between 2005 and 2009, he had the second highest war of any player in baseball behind only Albert Pujols. His importance to that lineup is absolutely paramount. Without him in there, without Howard in there, this team's really going to struggle to score runs. I think we're going to see a lot of one nothing games. And those are hard to win consistently on a long-term basis. You mentioned that in previewing that division that you picked uh, the Miami Marlins to win. You think they've added enough in the offseason to, to really you know, outlast Philadelphia, and then, you know, the Nationals are interesting this year, and the Braves almost mm-hmm. made the playoffs last year. That's the team that you think, based on the moves that they made in the offseason and bringing Ozzie Guinan and the new ballpark and all the stuff that's surrounding them, that they could make a serious run this year? I did. You know, I spent a lot of time down in Miami at the beginning of spring training uh, for a cover story we did kind of on this great gamble that the Marlins have made. I think one thing that separates them from a lot of other teams that have kind of opened new stadiums in the past decade or so and you know, then kind of nearly doubled payroll to try and capitalize on that is that the Marlins already had a really good nucleus in place. Obviously, Josh Johnson's one of the best pitchers in the NL. He struggled somewhat with injuries, but between him, between you know, Mike slash Gene Carlos Stanton, between Hanley Ramirez, Gabby Sanchez, they already had really a very strong nucleus there. And then you almost add complementary pieces to that in Jose Reyes, Mark Burley, and Heath Bell. Obviously, they didn't get off to the best of starts. They're one and three. But I think that what they had there plus what they added will really lead to great things for the franchise. Just a quick word on the ballpark itself. You know, this is kind of a controversial place. I actually saw it, um, I guess, a month before it opened or so. Um, a lot of people really criticized it, you know, that home run statue, that 75-foot-tall piece of pop art they have in center field, things like that. What's really ugly to me are kind of all these ballparks that have opened since Camden Yards that are all trying to be the same thing, you know, kind of like kitschy recapturings of a bygone era. 
I kind of admire the Marlins for taking the next step and trying to do something different. You know, if you think it's ugly, if you think the home run sculpture's ugly, that's up to you. But at least they're trying to have some fun with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely different. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you can see it right. I haven't been there yet, but just right from television, you can see that it's a very mm. unique place. But I think that that's a really unique baseball market. You know, I, yeah. I, I think it would be silly to try to do what they are doing and what they've done in Baltimore or what they did in Pittsburgh. It just doesn't seem like it would translate as well down there. Is that your impression as well? That's my impression for sure. I mean, there's several things that are more important than the ballpark's aesthetics to me. You know, one is obviously that it does have a roof, which is key in Miami where, you know, fans who would drive up to Dolphin Stadium would just, you know, drive up there to sit in the rain. And it also has air conditioning, so that kind of takes away that. So it's, actually, it's a more comfortable place to watch baseball. But Ozzie Guillen will tell you, and everybody down there will tell you, that it really doesn't matter any of these things if the team doesn't win and win fast. There have been a lot of teams that have kind of doubled their payroll when they moved into new ballparks and then not win and then had to go right back. If we're talking about, you know, the Padres or the Pirates or you know, even the Mets to some degree. So, you know, Ozzie Guillen says, if you want to see nice architecture, there's a lot of nice architecture down here in Miami. He wants you know, to put a team out there that's going to win and that's going to get people to come back. And as I said, I think the Marlins are in pretty good position to do that right off the bat. One more thing about Miami. You know, there's something that's really interesting to me about their season, and that's the presence of Showtime. You know, Showtime mm-hmm. is going to produce uh, the second season of the franchise. Last season they did it with San Francisco Giants, and Maybe it was a coincidence, but it seemed like as that show debuted, the Giants season kind of tailed off. Now, there's a lot of other factors. I'm not blaming it on Showtime. But it seems like the Marlins could be – they're almost like hard knocks featuring the Jets. You know, they got that super personality from their coach, you know, and we're going to learn a lot more about the personalities on the team. But what do you think about Showtime being there and covering the team this year? And do you worry at all about – those kinds of programs and the effects on the teams that they cover because we've seen some definite mixed results in terms of all the teams that have done hard knocks, the Giants last year, you know, 24-7 in the NHL. It's, it's definitely it's, it's interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I don't uh, – I'm not that worried about it. I don't think Showtime, you know, broke Buster Posey's leg last year, for Certainly example. Didn't. Um, you know, I think one thing about the Marlins is that the players have been the players who have been there have been so starved for any attention, you know, for the past five years. Obviously, we know of those famous nights at Dolphin Stadium when people were counting literally hundreds of fans in the crowd, and that's it. Uh, you know, I think first of all that Ozzie Guillen will suck up a lot of that attention and a lot of that camera time and a lot of those sound bites. Obviously, he's already gotten in trouble this year for some comments he made about Fidel Castro that upset the Cuban-American community down there in Miami. Um, But second, you know, I think these players have kind of been waiting for this opportunity to step into the limelight. Um, I I think that they're uh, in position to to seize it, really. So, no, I'm not unduly concerned um, about that. the presence of the Showtime cameras. I think it's going to be an exciting thing for Miami and for the team. Let's talk a little bit about the Nationals because just to stick in that division, they're a really interesting team too, I think. Steven Strasburg is obviously the key. I mean, we, he's a he's a perfect example of a guy that we had so many expectations for. I remember he pitched in Buffalo when he was making his way up. And, you know, our minor league baseball team, they maybe average 1,000 fans a night. There was 15,000 fans there that night. The place was packed. 
And that attention isn't going to go away, and he's recovering from Tommy John's surgery. And still to this day, Tommy John is the guy who has the best numbers post that surgery. We learned that last week from Jane Levy. What do you think about Strasburg and coming back from the injury and handling the pressure and the Nats in general, who are a team that for for probably the first time in a long time, maybe even back to 1994 in Montreal, there's some expectations on this team. There are some expectations. I don't think we should go overboard. They still have some holes. But the pitching staff certainly is very impressive. And certainly, you know, one through five um, is up there with any in the National League. Strasburg, I think, you know, we saw him come back last year and look, look very good. I don't think there's any reason to think that he is going to disappoint. But another member of the pitching staff that I'm really kind of focusing in on is uh, Jordan Zimmerman, another guy who had, uh, you know, some injury problems a couple of years ago. Last year, his numbers were, were really terrific, uh, especially in terms of, of his control. He struck out, uh, I think, he had a four-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio. This guy's only 25 years old. So between him, you know, Strasburg, Gio Gonzalez had a rough beginning, but he'll be fine. Edwin Jackson, I think, was a very savvy signing. I think that pitching staff is going to take them a long way. They also have a really good bullpen now. You know, we've already seen Drew Storen, their closer, started the year on the DL. And they have two guys. Immediately, they have so many guys who can, can, can do the job that they're splitting the closer role between Henry Rodriguez, who throws a million miles an hour, and Brad Lidge. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the pitching staff's very deep. I think maybe some of the problems will come on offense. If you look at Adam LaRose, Jason Worth, can Mike Morse repeat what he did last year? But certainly, I don't think it's too early to say that this team could challenge for a wild card in the East, especially if the Phillies are as down as I, you know, I kind of think they're going to be. You know, everyone expected and probably still expects the Mets season to be a disaster. Finally, they've gotten a little bit of closure in the, the, the financial aspect of the team and the scandal that they had there trying to deal with the Bernie Madoff stuff. Like I said, Buffalo were kind of affiliated with the Mets in a way. Probably you'd agree the key to the team is going to be Santana. He pitched five innings on opening day, didn't give up any runs. But what do you think is the best-case scenario for the Mets this year, and what has to happen to reach that best-case scenario? Obviously a very heartening start, an unexpected sweep of Atlanta here. Best-case scenario I still think would be, you know, if they got within one or two or a few games of 500, that would be a real, real accomplishment for this team. They do have some bright spots. If you look at Lucas Duda, has a couple of home runs already. Ike Davis, if he can recover from the illness that he had in spring training. Um, you know, has, Ike's gotten off to a pretty bad start here, but I think he's still a good player. David Wright seems to be a bit revitalized. Maybe they'll get some surprising pitching. This is clearly a rebuilding team. You know, I don't think we should project out from this 3-0 and start. Uh, they have some pieces, but, you know, not this year. Not this year for the Mets. You know, the National League is really interesting because mm-hmm. there are so many, ch- there's so many changes in the offseason. I mean, Milwaukee lost Prince Fielder. You know, St. Louis went through all the changes, changing managers, losing Albert Pujols. Um, Philadelphia, as you said earlier, could be a little down as their lineup isn't very strong. Where, who is the class of the National League? Who are the contenders? Is it the Diamondbacks and the Giants? Um, mm-hmm. Is it the Reds? I mean, where, where do you look? Who are, the, who are the powerhouses in the National League? Or isn't there one? Is it just one of these years where the league is really wide open? You know, I think it's a fun year in the NL. In the AL, 
I almost think you could look at the AL and, and say who the five playoff teams are going to be right now. You know, obviously, probably someone will sneak in there or whatever. But I think Detroit has no challengers in the Central. It's going to be the Rangers and the Angels in the West, and then it's going to be the Yankees and you know probably Tampa Bay in the East. You right. know, the Red Sox obviously have a lot of problems. NL is way more wide open here. You know, we could see any of four teams winning the NL East, excluding the Mets. You know, maybe I think it'll be a race between the Cardinals and the Reds in the Central. I could actually see any of four teams, all but the Padres, winning the NL West. Obviously, the Diamondbacks and the Giants are the favorite. Colorado still has two of the greatest offensive players in the game, and Troy Tulowitzki and Carlos Gonzalez, and an improving pitching staff. And I actually like the Dodgers a lot more than some other people do. You know, everybody talks about last year as being such a horrible year for the Dodgers, everything they went through, whatever. They still ended up finishing 500, you know, better than 500. And I think there's even a silver lining in that finish. Yes, they got amazing, you know, historic years from their two best players, Matt Kemp and Clayton Kershaw, but they really got subpar ones from their third, fourth, and fifth best players in Andre Ethier, Chad Billingsley, and James Loney. And they still finished above 500. You know, they couldn't do much this offseason because the ownership situation, the GM, Ned Coletti, could only add these kind of unexciting veteran pieces like Chris Capuano or Aaron Harang or Jerry Harrison. No one who's really going to get the pulse racing. But now that they've been sold to Magic Johnson for that ridiculous $2 billion right. price, they presumably have some money now, which will give them the wherewithal if they're in it in midsummer to go out there and add payroll and really get someone. They do that and get just kind of average normal years from Ether, Billingsley, and Loney. You know, the Dodgers, uh, you know, downswing could be very short indeed. You mentioned the Reds when you, you, when you touched on the uh, NL Central. Were you surprised at all by the Joey Votto contract? Um, yes and no. You know, he's a great player. It's hard to project that far out. Obviously, Cincinnati is not a, is, you know, in some ways the smallest market we have, at least in terms of, you know, television viewers and things like that. But, you know, sometimes you have to make a risk like that. Vado is younger than, you know, a lot of guys are when they get these kind of long deals. They obviously believe in him, and they believe in him the long term. So I kind of applaud it. You know, I'm not going to go crazy over whether it's, you know, what, 5 10% too high or whatever. I don't think that when you get into that uh, that sort of difference, it really makes that, that much of an impact on anything but yeah, they've decided to give me their franchise player, and you know, I kind of I, I applaud it. It's certainly a much better contract than you know Joe Mowers was a couple years ago, which I said at the time seemed a bit crazy for a guy of his age, which is you know not advanced age, but how old he is, and also the position he plays. Votto's only 28. Do I think he can be good until his late 30s? Sure. The sportscasters are here for the first time with Ben Ryder from Sports Illustrated. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at S-I-Ben-R-E-I-T-E-R. You can also find his writing in the magazine and on the website, all that good stuff. Let's switch gears to the American League a little bit. And You mentioned how you can almost pick the playoff teams out. It's, it seems like it's a really top-heavy league. You know, The Central seems like the Tigers and everyone else. Uh, like you said, the Rangers and Angels seem to be the winners in the West, you know, the two teams that will compete in the West. And then maybe, again, the American League East might be the most interesting because you want to say the Yankees and Rays, uh, the, Red, the Red Sox don't look as good this year. What about the Blue Jays and the Orioles? Can they compete at all in this division? Um, 
The Orioles, no, I don't think so. Not not right now. They're three and zero. You know, kind of very very surprising, impressive start here. Obviously, against the overmatched Twins. Uh, no, I don't think that they can yet. I just don't think that their pitching will be able to hold up uh, under the strain of the American League East. Guys like Tommy Hunter, Jason Hamill, they're just guys. None of these prospects that they've had for a long time have really panned out yet. Maybe they will all at once, but I'm not expecting it. I don't think the Orioles, I think the Orioles are fairly well set up for the future. They still have nice centerpieces, Nick Markakis, Adam Jones, Matt Wieters. But no, I think competing this year will be beyond them. The Blue Jays are a popular dark horse pick, on the other hand, um, for several reasons. One, they have Jose Bautista, who I don't know why some people are anticipating he'll have a fall-off from his last two years. I'm not not seeing that at all, and I don't understand why we'd think he would. Simply, in some ways, the greatest player in the game. They also got a pretty deep lineup, but I think what's really to like about the Blue Jays is their pitching, particularly Brandon Morrow. You know, mm. sabermetricians and you know s- statisticians are love Brandon Morrow because he has such a high strikeout rate and his peripherals are so good. He's been kind of unlucky as far as things like batting average with balls in play over the last couple of years and stuff like that. But he is a real he's real ace potential. It's still just unbelievably curious why the Mariners would have traded him a couple of years ago, even for a pretty good closer in Brandon League. But yeah, Morrow's a guy um, off of whom I think the rest of the pitching staff can feed, whether we're talking about Ricky Romero or maybe Kyle Drabeck will turn into something. I don't think that they're quite ready this year, but yeah, I can see them kind of being in things uh, pretty deep into the summer. Can anyone compete with Detroit in the Central? Who's the second best team in the Central? Is it the Royals? Uh, it's tough. I don't. I don't think it's the Royals. Um, I don't think again because of pitching. I think Eric Hosmer could get some MVP votes this year. He's that good, and I haven't. I've talked to tons of scouts. No one has a bad word to say about him. They obviously have a lot of power in the lineup, but I don't think a team with you know Luke. Hoshevar and Danny Duffy and you know Jonathan Sanchez. I don't think you're gonna be able to compete with the Tigers. You know the, the Tigers lineup is better and their rotation is better. One team I actually kind of like is the Indians um, as a potential second place finisher. In large measure because of uh, you know Shinsu Chu is back there. He had almost everything go wrong last year that right. could go wrong, whether it's injuries or you know he got a DUI off the field things. He's back there, you know, Masterson looks like he could develop into an ace. That's Justin Masterson. I think Ubaldo Jimenez, he's a smart guy. Um, He's a good worker. I think he'll be able to put together what he wasn't able to put together last year. They've got some real talent on that team. Um, I guess if I had to pick a second-place team, (laughs) they'd be my pick, although, you know, it's it's not really going to make a big difference as far as the playoff picture. Kind of a general question here. You know, your colleague Lee Jenkins, a couple of months back, wrote a really great story about day number 162 of the season last year and what a magical day that was. And I remember that was one of the first days where I felt like I watched all of the games with everyone on Twitter. Felt like we were all watching those games together, talking about the different things, making comments. It was such a great night. Do you think baseball can still have a night like that with the new playoff format in place? And I guess that's a really complicated way to ask you 
Do you mm-hmm. like the new format or do you not like it? I don't like the new format, to be honest. It seems kind of artificial. You know, baseball series, I mean, there's a reason baseball is played in series of games. You know, and to kind of have these 162-game seasons come down to this one game between the wildcard teams just seems kind of crazy. I don't really get it. Another fear I have, I'm not sure how this will statistically play out, is that, you know, we're just kind of by introducing more and more teams who kind of don't have a really great regular season body of work to their credit, I'm worried that we're going to increasingly end up with World Series champions who are just kind of these teams that sneak in and get hot as opposed to kind of rewarding the ones that were consistently great all year long. Some people don't really care about that, um, but I do. As far as whether we're going to have those great um, days, I think we will. You know, like teams are still going to be battling to get those wild card spots. And then obviously baseball kind of artificially engineered these exciting do-or-die games, uh, which will now be the wild card games. You know, I, I think it would probably have been best to stick to to the, for, to the old format with just eight teams making it. But, you know, pro sports, they don't turn down any opportunity to goose ratings and keep more markets engaged for longer and produce, uh, you know, more entertaining games, however artificially. So uh, that's where we are. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because that day was so special. And then they had another day like that with Game 6 of the World Series. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the next thing I wanted to ask you. You know, the Texas Rangers are the first team since the 87 Red Sox to play games knowing that the year before they were, well, the, this team, the Rangers, were two times one strike away from the World Series championship. Mm. Where do you think they are mentally? Do you think that they're ready to make another deep run? You know, they've, they've had some changes. They spent the money on Darvish, lost C.J. Wilson. Where do you think this team is mentally? I think they're fine, to be honest. You know, I, I don't think they're sitting up at night, you know, dreaming of Nelson Cruz missing that fly <laughs> ball. You know, I think that I, I, they're my pick in the AL West. I, I'm picking them over the Angels. Um, I just think in terms of the totality and well-roundedness of their talent, uh, they're probably the best team in baseball. If you look at the lineup up and down, each player is not only a good offensive player, but uh, in almost every uh, case, he's a good defender as well. You know, they kind of really excel at all facets in the game. Whereas if you look at a lot of the other contenders, unusually teams are having to make choices here, balancing, you know, offense and defense. For example, take a look at what the Angels, the Rangers, AL West competitors are trying to do at third base, trying to put Mark Trumbo out there. Now they have Albert Pujols and uh, Kendry Morales at DH in first base. Now, we went through something of a defensive revolution in the past few years with all these advanced statistical metrics um, that allow us to value defense unlike ever before. You know, we're talking about ultimate zone rating or defensive efficiency or plus minus. That stuff's kind of seeming to be thrown out the window a bit here, trying to get these big bats in the lineup, whether it's Trumbo in L.A. or even putting Miguel Cabrera, who tried to catch a ball with his face, during spring training uh, at third in Detroit. One of the main reasons for this, I think, is that the marginal value of the home run is really greater now than it has been for decades. You know, I I looked this up recently. In 2010, there were 4,613 home runs hit, which is the fewest since 1995 and more than 1,000 fewer than in 2000. Last year, there were only 4,552. 
So there are fewer and fewer home runs, and that's just incentivizing teams to get guys who can hit 30 home runs in the lineup any way they can, which is really why you're seeing Trumbo at third and Cabrera uh, playing third base there. The Rangers don't really have this problem. They've got really good defenders and really good hitters all over the, the diamond. It's another reason why I think that they should be considered the favorites in the American League. Wow, that's some really interesting stuff. And, you know, anytime you talk about home runs and home runs decreasing, the first thing that anyone thinks of is, well, performance-enhancing drugs, they're out of the game, or there's less in the game. But we also had this black eye of the National League MVP failing a drug test during the playoffs and then ha- having a 50-game suspension, getting out of it based on a technicality. Where do you think the league is right now with PEDs and their attempt to stop them? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that they're doing uh, almost as well, as best they can here, to be honest. And I think if we look at these home run numbers, we'd be foolish to think that at least some of the difference is not in the cleaning up of the game as far as PEDs of all types, so that's HGH or steroids or, or anything else. Um, to think you, We'd also be foolish to think that they're completely out of the game now. You know, I think that the science is always going to stay one step ahead of the testing, uh, you know, it's, can we put a number on it? No. But PEDs, you know, as long as sports exist, PEDs are going to be a part of them, and it's going to be a matter of how advanced the testing is for them and also kind of how much we will just kind of accept their presence going forward. Right. You know, I want to ask you something kind of nerdy, maybe. Okay. Uh, but we're interested in stuff like this at the Sportscasters. You know, you... I mentioned in your bio that you often you do this inside baseball column, and it's a shorter thing. You use usually shorter pieces, and, and then sometimes you write longer features. And I wonder from you, what do you look for when you're putting together that inside baseball column that you don't look for necessarily when you're doing a feature? You know, I guess what I'm asking is how are they different? Do you like one better than the other? And in terms of baseball, do you have anything – that you're looking to follow that might turn into a feature later, or maybe on the other side of that, something you're looking to follow that can be maybe more like a nugget in the inside baseball column. You know, they're really very different things doing the inside baseball columns and features. You know, inside baseball columns are, are quite short. They're only about 600 words max, sometimes under 500. So you really have to pull out a single idea and get to it very succinctly and, you know, kind of be crystal clear about it. Um, kind of what is the biggest issue or what's one big issue that week in baseball or what will become an issue in the next couple of weeks. Features, you have a chance, obviously, to be much more expansive. And really, you know, features are kind of why all magazine writers got into being magazine writers. Not to say I don't enjoy doing the baseball columns, because I do. It's just a very different kind of intellectual exercise. In features, you get to be a bit more artistic, really get into people's personalities and motivations and drives and things like that for another part of your uh of your complicated question um i think that i'm not going to give you all the guys i'm kind of looking at all the profiles i want to do or anything like that one person i'm looking at very closely is d gordon who's the leadoff hitting rookie shortstop for the dodgers it's a very unique player he's about five foot eight i'd say but he can allegedly do a 360 dunk. He's just incredibly athletic, blazingly fast. You know, he's the son of uh, Tom Gordon, the longtime relief pitcher. Um, I oh. think he could be a real team for a team that we already a real key 
for a team uh, that we already said, I believe, could be a threat in the NL West. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe keep an eye out for a D. Gordon feature sometime in the next month or two. All right. Again, the Sportscasters finishing up here with uh, Ben Ryder. It's first time on the show. It's been great. You can follow him on Twitter at SI underscore B-E-N-R-E-I-T-E-R. Let's kind of get you out of here on this. I, I wonder, you know, we've talked to... Um, Joe Lemire a few times. We've talked to Tom Verducci. You know, John Heyman isn't with you guys anymore. Where do you feel like you fit in to the overall baseball coverage? I mean, SI is such a deep bench in, in all of the different sports, you know. And I, and I think during football season we talked a little bit with Chris Burke, the football blogger, about this specific mm-hmm. thing. But when you think about writing for SI and writing about baseball, where do you, where do you feel like your your role and where do you feel like you're batting? Where's your role in the lineup and and what do you think you're trying to offer that you know Tom Verducci and Joe Lemire and Albert Chen that those guys aren't doing? You know, very interesting. I guess the way I view myself and the way I think I'm viewed is kind of like a a super utility guy right now in a way. You know, hopefully one of the better ones um, if we're using that metaphor. But I, my main, you know, my bailiwick really is baseball, as we discussed. Um, you know, I love doing features. I've done a lot of them. I love doing inside baseball. Kind of try and do both more analytical stat stuff and more kind of narrative type of things and also combine them. But as you said at the beginning of the show, you know, I've done a lot of NFL coverage. Um, two summers ago I did a lot of soccer coverage covering the World Cup in South Africa. Um, you know, I, I kind of like to think of myself as someone who could find the stories and pull them out and, you know, make make things clear in a, a wide range of sports. So while baseball is my main thing, you know, I like to think that anything that uh, anything that deserves writing about, you know, I, I can be a person who can uh, take it on. So I was a big fan of, like, the late 80s A's team and, like, Mike Gallego is, like, kind of their utility guy. That's kind of, like, who you are there then? <laughs> How about Ben Zobris? Ben you know? Zobris, okay. <laughs> All right, I like it. I like it. Ben Zobris, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> ben Zobris is an all-star, but he could play, you know, center field, right field, second base. Well, call, my, call me the Ben Zobris of SI, and maybe, you know, the Evan Longoria's guys like that would be more like uh, Tom Verducci or, or something. Gotcha. Love it, Ben. <laughs> this is great. I could do it all day. Really appreciate the time. Uh, hopefully you had a good time. We can do it again in the future. Thanks a lot, buddy. I'd love to, Steve. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, man. All right. We want to thank Ben Ryder from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com for joining us. Maybe my favorite baseball guest we've had. Uh, he was awesome. I definitely could see us using him a lot more in the future, especially since Joe Lemire has kind of dropped off the face of the <laughs> earth. I, I don't know where he is. This is a call out to Joe Lemire. Where are you, buddy? I've emailed you quite a few times. You think he's a, a listener? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely a downloader. Um, we're going to do something different. No Sportscasters 10 today. Instead, Don and I are going to go through the playoffs here of the NHL. First round starts tomorrow, Wednesday. Uh, with the Penguins and the Flyers. Easily the most interesting of the series, so why don't we just start right there. Don, thoughts? Um, like you said, interesting series. Uh, similar teams in that they both score a ton of goals. Pittsburgh was first in scoring. Philly was second in scoring. Look, I've said it kind of time and time again. I don't, I'm not a Penguins fan. 
But that said, I don't think I'm going to pick against him from here on out. Uh, they have the two best players in the league on the same team at the most important position and uh, a good, solid decor. And Philly just always has their goaltending explode in the playoffs. So, right. I mean, it's always a different guy. Uh, Brzezgalov hasn't had his chance to explode or to have his playoffs fall apart yet with them, but it just seems like no matter who is in that, no matter how good they're going, Leading up to the playoffs, they they always fall apart. So yeah, Brzezgalov is going to get his chance this year to do it. I think he's going to have to be really good if they're going to pull this upset off, which is I guess a small upset. I mean, yeah, it's a four five. Wouldn't but... be the biggest shock of all time if, if Philadelphia won. Uh, but I think maybe the most important player in this series is Claude Giroux, and the reason I say that is because if Malkin or Crosby aren't great in this series, you almost think the other one will be. Right. If Drew isn't really good for Philadelphia, Philly. who will be? Right. Do you want to count on an old Yarmir Yager? Do you want to count on Dirty Scott Hartnell, who <laughs> might be a little bit too interested in some of the other stuff than scoring goals, which he can do. He scored about 30 in the regular season, if not more. So he can do that, but you wonder where his head's going to be. And I think both teams are coached very well. You know, both coaches have been featured in 24-7, so we've gotten to really see yeah, their yeah. styles quite a bit the last couple seasons. I think they're both very good. They've both won Stanley Cups. So it's a really good series. I think it's the best of the first eight series. And uh, I'm going to watch every game probably, you know, given the opportunity. I know NBC is going to happy, be happy to play some of these games, sure. including game number two, I believe. Or game number three, I'm sorry, is Sunday. on yeah on yeah. Sunday on their on their station. So, I'm gonna pick Pittsburgh in seven. I've got Pittsburgh in six in this one. All right, so let's move along. We'll just go through the East here. Uh, let's start at the top. The number one New York Rangers taking on the Ottawa Senators, who really kind of skidded to go into the playoffs. They had an outside shot at the number two spot. It looked like they were chasing Boston down, and then it just kind of fell apart. Um, Gabrick might be the best player on the ice for either team. Uh, the Rangers and Brad Richards. Brad Richards has proven to be a bit of a stud in the postseason. Yeah, Conn Smythe winner. Yeah. Uh, that said, I think Ottawa has more scoring depth. Uh, Lundqvist has had lousy runs in the playoffs before. I mean, he's been good too, but uh, he has flaked out a couple times in the playoffs. Ottawa has Eric Carlson and uh, I think the biggest thing for Ottawa might be the idea that this might be Alfredson's last season or one of his last seasons. I don't think he's announced that officially, but he's got to be getting close. So if they can kind of go out like on his swan song and kind of rally behind him, I, I think it's going to be a tougher series than, than you would expect from a one versus eight. You know, Henry Lundqvist is really emerged as a star this season. He's probably going to win the Vesna. If nothing else, he's put a face back on hockey in New York city sure. that they probably haven't had since Mark Massier there. Um, you know, maybe they've had Wayne Gretzky, but, you know, not right, in a position right. to dominate. You know, uh, he's really put the face on New York hockey again. He's going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated this week, which means hockey's going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated this week, which is huge. Uh, I really think the Rangers are just a much better team than Ottawa. You mentioned that maybe Ottawa has a little bit more scoring depth. I could maybe buy that, but goaltending is just not even close. And as good as Carlson is right. in the offensive zone, he might be as bad in the defensive zone. Yeah, he'll be interesting to see how he, they shut him down. He's only like, what, a, a minus two or something like that? I mean, he's, he doesn't have a great plus minus, Carlson. Right. 
Um, I I think it's going to be tough for the Rangers to to play away from home in this series, but they're going to get to play more games in Madison Square Garden than that. I agree with you. It's going to be a little bit more hard, harder than people think. So I'll take the Rangers in six games. Yeah, I've got the Rangers in seven. Uh, number two team in the East is the Boston Bruins, uh, who have kind of earned that spot. They, Like I said, they were, they were getting chased down by Ottawa. Ottawa kind of fell out. Washington is the number seven seed. They've really had to earn that, and I think that's one thing they have going for them this year is that they've been playing hockey for about a month or playoff hockey for about a month now, and – in the past, that hasn't been the case. Most of the time in the last few years, they've had that division locked up uh, for maybe a month or two going into the playoffs, and they've kind of just coasted. Not this year. They've really had to kind of buckle down and win a race. They should get Nick Backstrom back. Um, but Boston, I mean, they're the defending champions. They have surprisingly good scoring depth. I think when we previewed the NHL season this year, I thought who was going to score for Boston, and they get pretty equal scoring from all their lines. They... Uh, should have a huge advantage in goal, Boston. Should. Yes. If Tim Thomas is playing like Tim Thomas can, he's going to be playing against a guy that's never started a playoff game. Or if Neuverth gets healthy, healthy, I mean he's still Mike, Michael Neuverth. So, right. but yeah, I mean they're starting. Looking at starting right now, Holtby, who has played I think maybe five or six NHL games. I know that the goaltending is a big difference here, but. Tim Thomas isn't young, and he's played a lot of hockey, as his team has played a lot of hockey. This team, Boston team reminds me a lot of the Sabres President's Trophy team the second year after the lockout. They had this big, huge run, which got them way ahead of everyone, and they didn't have to really play, and now they have to try to turn it on. As you said, Washington's been in playoff mode. Ovechkin's been really good. Mike yeah. Green is finally healthy. Nick Backstrom is finally healthy. There isn't a lot of pressure on them. So I'm going to take Washington in an upset and say that Washington beats Boston in seven games. All right, I've got Boston in six. I had Boston in five, but like the playoff thing pushed it to an extra game for me, uh, The uh, how hard they've had to play to get this far. But I still don't, I don't – I'd love Washington to win this one. I'd love to be wrong. As a Sabres fan, I have to hate the Bruins, but uh, I just don't see it. And an interesting fact about the three series we have previewed so far, the lo- lesser seed in each of those series had the better season series against the other team. Wow. The only one that doesn't hold true is the last one, Florida Woo. at the Devils. Can't wait. The uh, To get blue for one second here, the who gives a shit series <laughs> of the playoffs. I mean, maybe me. that's being biased, and maybe that's what Florida needs to ride. Um, play the no-respect card as hard as you can because nobody's giving Florida much respect. They're basically an anonymous team other than Brian Campbell and uh, however old he is, Stephen Weiss. Uh, they've been really good in close games this year, one-goal games. They're 17, 5, and 18. They've had 18 overtime and shootout losses this wow. year. and But they've been really, really lousy their last 10 games. Leading into the playoffs, they only had two wins in their last 10, going 2, 3, and 5 in that stretch. Not a lot of good stats for Florida. Uh, the Devils, on the other hand, have experience. They've got a lot of scoring. They actually score a lot, which people don't associate with the Devils. But right, Kolchuk, Parise have both been solid. Uh, Sakara. They're going to get Zajac back. Um, Eliash has been really Eliash, good. Eliash, yeah. Uh, and they actually might be the hottest team or one of the hottest teams entering into the playoffs. They've had six wins in a row and we're on a 7-2-1 and one stretch. And lastly, hockey playoffs aren't always about the best team. It's a lot of times just a team that can – can play as a team the best or a team that has like can get up the most be the most emotional team and i just 
I don't think there's a distinct advantage to home ice in Florida. I mean, if no. nobody talks about how the hardest building to play in is whatever building the Florida Panthers play in. So give me the Devils in five. Yeah, there's no way I'm picking Florida here. I think they're very lucky to even be in the playoffs. I think we're all very unlucky that they are. <laughs> um, I think that, look, at they had a good start. They benefited from a weak division. They're kind of in this based on a technicality, at least being the third seed. Uh, New Jersey's a better team. I think they have better goaltending. I think they have better defense. I think they have better forwards. And I don't think Florida's going to stick around long. I'm going to pick the Devils in four. Yeah, and like I said, this is exactly what Florida has to do is listen to all this press and about how no everyone's counting them out. And yeah, maybe, I'd love maybe for, they can ride that. Maybe I'd love for Florida that. to listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it's heading over to the West. The number one seed Vancouver Canucks, uh, again, win the President's Trophy. Against the, they're going to face number eight, the Kings, who the Kings have really, really messed themselves up by. Yeah, they were in the three seed. They like floundered a week ago. all the way to playing the Stanley Cup uh, loser from last year. If you're Vancouver, most of my points for both of these teams are kind of negatives about the other team. Mike Richards and Jeff Carter tend to do a disappearing act in the playoffs. At least that was their reputation in Philly, and it got them both shipped out last year. Uh, the Kings don't score goals. They were 29th in the league in scoring. Maybe the worst I've ever seen. But they also don't give up any. Jonathan Quick has a really good shot at the Vesna. Very good. They had the fourth-ranked power or penalty kill, which should be huge because Vancouver's a really good power play team. But Vancouver is really probably deeper at every other position. Even without Daniel Sedin, who without didn't Sedin, practice who didn't today. practice. But they, they expect him, I think, to be okay to play at some point in that series. And my other point is, which I always make against Vancouver, and this is in the Kings' favor, is that Roberto Longo is terrible. I had this, uh, and that might be an overstatement reflected by my hatred of Roberto Luongo, but I think he's the worst of the two goalies there, and I think most people see that except for the people in charge in Vancouver. That's the one worry. If if Luongo lets in a a couple soft goals and they lose game one, you know, then the time in between game one and game two and hockey crazy Vancouver is going to be everyone talking about goalie. Uh, right. Should they switch goalie? But you know what? They were in the same position last year, really. Sure. And they managed to survive it. I don't like the way the Kings are playing right now. And I just think the Kings will the Kings will challenge them, especially if Sedin doesn't get to play right away. Sure. Uh, but I think Vancouver should be good enough to get out of this. I'll take the Canucks in six. I took. I also took Vancouver in six, and that was after writing down Vancouver in four. I just think Luongo is is good for one of those bad bounces, and it could cost them. And it's crazy that the Kings don't score. I know I made the point already that the 29th, but they've got talent there in Carter, Richards, uh, Anze Kopitar. Right. They got a lot of talent. They just, yeah, they just don't score. All right, the number two team in the West was the St. Louis Blues, the upstart uh, surprising Blues this year, and they're going to face off against number seven, San Jose. Look, the Blues – do it all with defense. There's not a lot really else to say. I mean, uh, Bacchus has had a nice season, but he's not blowing anyone out of the water statistically. they got the best goalie tandem in the league in Halak and Elliott, and they also allow the fewest shots against. So the Blues, it's no secret how they play. They grind, they win close games, and they uh, hold you to very few shots. Sharks, on the other hand, have – more much deeper scoring depth with all the talent they have there. They have the second most shots four, so that's an interesting contrast in the series. They they have some playoff experience. I know they're a team that kind of always gets killed for being like a losing, uh, for being an underachiever. But they kind of shook that label 
in the past few years. Not that they've won a cup or anything like that, but Thornton's been better in the playoffs. Marlowe's always kind of good. Yep. And uh, like I said, the biggest question, who's going to score goals for the Blues? I'm going to take both seven seeds, and here's why I'm going to take San Jose. The pressure's off of them this year. Sure. I think a big reason why they've been playoff chokers the last few years is because everyone said, oh, boy, they're playoff chokers, and here they go again. They have to worry about this this year. The, the pressure's off of them. They're playing with house money here. You know, It looked like they might not make the playoffs at points during this season. And I still love their experience in the playoffs as opposed to St. Louis's. Louis, right. And I think St. Louis could also get into a really strange situation with goalie. If Halak doesn't yeah, play a great strange. game, and then well, we should play Elliot. He was our All Star, right? No, we should. You know, I don't like that stuff. Even though you have two good ones, maybe you don't have any one. You know, that's been the way with you know quarterbacks. You know, there's yeah, a, that right. cliche: if you have two good ones, you don't have any good ones at all, or whatever. I, I just you know, St. Louis is a great home team, but they're not good away from home. And San Jose is a good home. You know, they have a good home home ice They're more advantage. talented on paper, for yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and they have a lot of talent. And I think maybe St. Louis has had a great season, but I don't know that they're ready for prime time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick the uh, Sharks there in seven games. Yeah, I have the Sharks in six. And it's interesting the reason you gave uh, taking both sevens because it's kind of the same reason. Like Washington has always had all that pressure right, on them. But this yeah. year they just had to get in. So maybe fans are a little bit more like, okay, we made it. But, I mean, nobody is picking them as the favorites. So... This might be their time to shine. Interesting stat from this series. The Sharks and St. Louis season series, the Sharks are 0-4 for this season and only scored three goals in those four games. So, wow. So they're going to have to find a way around that. It is that. tough to score on St. Louis. If these goalies are hot, I'm going to look like a fool in this one. But I don't know. There's something that tells me that San Jose might be able to pull it out. Yeah, I took the Sharks in six there. Uh, moving on, number three, the Phoenix Coyotes. Who would have thought that? Uh Versus the number six Chicago Blackhawks, maybe two teams surprising for different reasons. The Blackhawks kind of had to struggle to get in a little bit. They played a little bit better down the stretch. Uh, but people expected, obviously, more from them. Phoenix, uh, in their favor, Jonathan Taves hasn't played since February 19th, and he's the Blackhawks' kind of heart and soul over there. Right. No Taves, no winning. Right. I believe sure. he's going to be back. But, That's the again, word. It's, he's been a long time out. And Mike Smith is... Probably the hottest player in the NHL right now, if you don't know who Mike Smith is, because it's a pretty generic-sounding guy. He's the Phoenix Coyotes goalie, and in his last five starts, he's had five wins and allowed two goals against, including three-game shutout streaks. So Mike Smith is hot. Uh, in Chicago's favor, I mean, they're just the more talented offense by far. If guys like Kane can get going, it would help that. Hosa. Uh, Hosa. And I don't know how this plays out if you're a Coyote. I've obviously never played professional sports, so I don't know how this feels in the locker room or anything. But Phoenix still has no owner. So I I don't know if that has any bearing on the the playoffs at all. Uh, But I know I've always liked seeing the Washington owner, who I can't think of. Ted Leonsis. Ted Leonsis sitting in the box cheering his team on. With his jersey. With his jersey, right, like a down-to-earth – I think that helps a little bit. I think if the Sabres make the playoffs next year, it's going to be cool to see their their owner, Pagula. Pagula, in the box cheering and everything. And I don't know. Maybe it doesn't hurt a team, but maybe it could help give a team a little extra push. And Phoenix is owned by the league right now. so I wonder if Phoenix has won what they wanted to win this year by winning the, the first division in Phoenix. Sure. Like I wonder if they've accomplished their goals already. And Chicago – 
their goals aren't to make the playoffs. No, you know their their right. their goal is to get deep in it. And with Taves coming back and Kane playing really well and having probably the five or six best players in the series, I'm going to give Chicago an edge. I wouldn't be surprised if Phoenix plays a little bit better than people think. I think Phoenix is more likely to play the no one believes in us kind sure. of successfully than Florida. Um, only because, like you said, Mike Smith is really hot. They're the team going in the right direction, where Florida's going the wrong direction. Right. Um, I'm still going to give a little advantage to Chicago, and I'm going to say that they'll win in, in seven games. But if Jonathan Taves doesn't play, or if he only plays a little bit, I don't know. I, I'm close to picking Phoenix, but I can't pull the trigger. Yeah, I've got Chicago in six. I guess I just assume if it goes to seven, that would be in Phoenix. So maybe I'm not, Again, I don't know how much home ice advantage. I don't know how many teams are afraid to play in phoenix uh maybe the second most interesting series yeah the four fives are great is the four five in nashville uh the predators against the red wings nashville's a really interesting team they're definitely a team that said we're going for it this year they picked up radulov back out of russia they yep, have Kostitsin uh and- Kostitsin, gostad so they've really went for it i mean they gave up a lot for gostad and if they make an early exit that's gonna look like a really bad trade uh, they have the best de- pairing in the NHL, maybe by a lot. Better goalie, Suter and Weber. They have a better, yeah, the better goalie and Pekka Rinne. Uh Jimmy Howard has played better off his injury, and he had a great, great start to the season. But they've been shaky in goal a tiny bit down the end of the season. Uh, also against the Red Wings, they're an o- they're a much older team. Uh, they're not good on the road, but they do have experience and they're great at home. So. They kind of have to steal one here, I think. But once they do, it could put a lot of doubt in the Predators' head because, I mean, Detroit was great at home this year. The thing about Detroit is it seems like their season was defined by one 23-game home winning sure. streak. Yep. If you take that out, which you never do that, right. I mean, it's a 23-game stretch. But they weren't that great otherwise. As you said, they were pretty bad on the road this year. There's something about this Detroit team that just isn't as good as the other Detroit teams that we've seen make deep cup runs. Uh, I love Datsuk and Zetterberg. They're yeah. two of the most fun players to watch in the National Hockey League. So I wouldn't mind them sticking around. But I think this is the Preds' year finally. I think having Radulov there is, is pretty big. Um, I think Gostad can win some big faceoffs for him. Uh, the thing that worries me is if there's a minute left and one of these two teams is down by one, I know who can get a goal for Detroit. I don't know if I know for sure yeah. who can get a goal for Nashville. And that's and this is one of those series that I think John Butchergrass is going to be able to play a bunch of overtime challenges yeah, with, yep. you know. And I think the important thing is going to, in this series is going to be who can win the two or three overtime games they might have. And I think because I think Pekarene is better than Jimmy Howard, I'm going to give the edge to the Preds and I'm going to take them in seven. Yeah, I've got Nashville in seven also, and it's interesting you bring up overtime. In the six meetings between these two teams, none of them went to overtime. What a but genius I am! The series has been as tight as it can be. It's it's a three three series, and what you brought up about the Detroit's a good point, and I was thinking about this over the course of the week, is they always say in basketball games every team goes on a run. You can be up 10 games, but someone else is going to go on a run and catch you. I think the opposite holds true in a hockey season where all you need is one good run right. or one bad run to ruin your season. Like the the Sabres, Sabres season was ruined by a 12-game right. losing streak. Uh, teams like Boston started off really hot and kind of just hung a- around for the rest of the year, and they ended up with the two-seed. The Sabres President's Trophy year, they were super hot at the beginning of the season and just kind of held on to that for the rest of the season. Same with teams like uh, Detroit, what we just mentioned. Florida. They held on. Florida held on because of the beginning of the season. 
so I mean, a good run could really save your season, especially when teams are getting in with basically below 500 records because of overtime losses. All right, so that's what Don and I think about the first round of the NHL playoffs. Let's take a break and come back and see what an expert thinks. We're going to talk to Darren Elliott from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com, and do what we just did. So if you don't want to hear it, again, <laughs> uh, stick ahead, skip ahead to pick four. But I think it'll be interesting to get another perspective on this and probably a perspective that most people are going to respect a little bit more than ours. And yeah, that's yeah, okay. Yeah. That guy played in the NHL. Right. So we'll be right back with Darren Elliott. Our next guest is from Milton, Ontario, and is a graduate of Cornell University, where he played goaltender. At Cornell, he was a two-time All-Ivy selection, and as a senior, he earned All-American honors. In 1980, he was a six-round draft pick by the Los Angeles Kings, and went on to play in the National Hockey League for the Kings, Red Wings, and Buffalo Sabres. After hockey, he began a career in computers before entering the world of broadcasting. He has been an analyst for Atlanta Thrashers games, the Anaheim Mighty Ducks, and national coverage at Versus, now the NBC Sports Network. In 2001, he began writing for SI.com, where his view from the ice column still appears today. In 1996, he entered the Cornell Athletic Hall of Fame. He has also won Emmys for sports programming and covering live events. And he is making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Darren Elliott. How are you doing today, Darren? I'm just fine after that. I just feel old. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say you tell you what I was doing in 1980 because then it would really make you feel old. But it was being born. There you go. <laughs> well, that, that's uh, that's a good thing. And now you're uh, you're talking sports, and that's what we still love to do, no matter how old we are. That's right. So we're excited to have you on today because we're super excited about the N- the NHL playoffs. Even being here in Buffalo, where what started as maybe the most promising season in Sabres history just quickly deteriorated into one of the most disappointing before returning to being potentially one of the most exciting and then being disappointing again. (laughs) So before we get on to the real teams and the real playoffs, I just want to ask you what you think went wrong for the Sabres this year. And if you were in charge of the organization, would you bring back Ruff and Regeer? Because that's always a debate here, given how much time they've had probably more time than anyone else in the National Hockey League and, you know, still haven't been able to produce that cup. Well, I mean, if you if you look at real sound organizations, I think you, you stay the course. Uh, it, it, Detroit's done it. Uh, Nashville's done it. Uh, I think stability has a value, and, and Buffalo has, has been really well served by that with, with both Darcy Regeer and Lindy Ruff. Um, you know, winning the Stanley Cup is is really tough. I, I think you have to get to the position where you're in the mix every single season. And, and I think they're on their way to, to doing that. And the way you do that is you accumulate young talent and, and have them grow together. And, and and that's where you're at. You just had too many gaps this year. Were you as impressed as I was with Marcus Foligno? I mean, he really looks like he could be one of the next great Sabres. You know, you don't want to put that. I, I, I liked what I saw. I didn't see much. But I also, you know, at the same time, know that you, you don't want to stamp guys too soon. I mean, that that that's, you know, look, look at what you had with Tyler Myers. You know, there, there's still growing pains and, and, and learning curves, even when you have a, a, a real 
uh, impact as a young player. All right. Well, I don't want to spend any more time on them. They're uh, erased from my memory, the uh, 2012 (laughs) Sabres. Goodbye. Let's talk about the real stuff, the playoffs. They start tomorrow night in Pittsburgh. Let's just start right there. It seems like it's one of the best first-round playoff matchups I can remember in a long time. Two teams that were really good all season long. Obviously, there's the story of Crosby coming back. Malkin could be the MVP. They've had a really heated rivalry. It's gotten even more heated the last couple of weeks with some of the things that have happened and some of the things that have been said on and off the ice. What's your kind of analysis of this series, and who do you think will be standing at the end? I mean, really, it's a pick em. Um I, I, I tend to, to, to favor Pittsburgh. Uh, just because uh, I think they have more discipline uh, and better goaltending, I'm not I'm not sold on Ilya Brzezgalov. I know he what he can be on both ends of the spectrum. I think uh, the HBO series 24/7 showed us that. Uh, you know he's not, so so I, I like Pittsburgh. But Mark Andre Fleury, I think for whatever reason, is underrated at times. But now he has he's won a Stanley Cup. But he's also had some moments in the playoffs, uh, you know, over the last couple of years that haven't been brilliant. So, you know, if he if he keeps his form, Mark Andre Fleury, that is, uh, his top form, uh, I think that's uh, I'm outside with Pittsburgh. But you know what? If, if Philly, if if you go, if you call me back in two weeks and go, oh, you pick Pittsburgh and Philly one, I'll just shrug and say, yeah, okay, whatever. That's that close. Right now, we've made a big deal about Crosby coming back, and rightfully so. He's one of, if not the best player in the world. But do you think to the the way the Penguins team is structured, is Latang being healthy and ready for this playoff grind just as important? I don't know if it's just as important. It's, it's serious importance to the team, though. Chris Letang really makes them go from the back. And the reason Crosby, and I won't put Crosby as, if you want to take the name uh, out of the equation, whenever you add a player uh, with that kind of skill and will to make your one, two, three lines down the middle, you have three centermen you know, with, with Evgeny Malkin and Jordan Stahl and now Crosby, if you want to put his name in, or just the third centerman. That that gives you such a, a, a an advantage as a coach. Not that Dan Bowsman really needs one fine coach in his own right, but you have so much flexibility now, more so than anybody uh, in the National Hockey League. So that's why I say Crosby returning really really helps Pittsburgh's chances. But again, that's not to to denigrate Chris Chris Letang and what he means to that team at all. You know, I said that maybe Pittsburgh and Philadelphia is the most exciting series I can remember in a long time. Maybe the exact opposite of that is the Florida and New Jersey series. Try to sell that one to me, if you can. Uh, well, it's uh, it's two teams coming from two different kinds of swampland. Um, is that okay? Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> yeah, um, you can say that. No, uh, there, there's no selling it. I mean, the, you're, you're looking at uh, two, two local, anybody who's a local fan of, of those two teams will follow that series and nobody else will. And, you know, New Jersey has uh, more star power with Zach Parise and Ilya Kovalchuk and Marty Brodeur. But they've never gone out of their way to sell themselves over the years. So, uh, again, even with their winning and their success rate uh, over a long period of time, what, what should be held up in, in the same light as, as a Philadelphia or Detroit um, or, or any of the other real consistent organizations, Nashville, um, then, you know, we, we, they should be, but they're not. And Florida, well, they haven't been in the playoffs, and nobody would care if they were or not, other than the, the fans who actually cheer for the Panthers. Right, assuming those exist. Uh, a lot of people have picked the Devils to upset the Panthers. 
you one of them? Yeah, I, I again, I don't, I never like. I'm surprised Florida uh, made the playoffs never, and they won the third seed because Washington had all their struggles that I did not foresee. Um, no, I don't, I don't even see that as an upset. I think I know that's a three versus right. a six, but it, it's because of the divisional situation. I, I think New Jersey's the better, sounder, uh, more explosive team all the way around. You know, Boston versus Washington is a much more exciting series. I wonder, I've been wondering about Boston, if the amount of hockey they've played in the last couple of years is catching up with them. They remind me a lot of the President's Trophy Sabres winning team a few years ago who had a really huge chunk of the season that they dominated, then didn't have anyone really pressuring them, and coasted and never were able to quite turn it back on. Washington has been playing playoff hockey for a while now. Ovechkin is playing at the level we're used to Ovechkin playing as opposed to where he was in October and November. Maybe is Washington kind of poised to win a round here, maybe? It would be a maybe. I mean, you know, I, I really like the young goaltender, Braden Holtby. Uh, I would never say that he's going to pull the upset over the defending Stanley Cup champs. I just, I, I just I don't see that in the cards. If it happens, that would be a fantastic first-round story. Um, so that means that I, I can't see the Capitals uh, beating the Boston Bruins in the first round. The other thing that's different from the, the example, that, as I see it, that you cited, the Buffalo Sabres were always small in stature. The Boston Bruins are not. They're a big physical team. So, yeah, they may have played a lot of hockey, and, and some of that wear and tear is probably more mental than physical, but I think they're better equipped than the, the team you cited to, to play a lot of hockey. Yeah, you know, I do wonder about Boston, though. You know, it seems like Thomas hasn't been Thomas lately. Is that where maybe we'll see the wear and tear? Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's face it, that that whole uh, episode uh, and trip to the White House and, and you know, making right. a personal and political statement, uh, it fractured that room a little bit. Uh, make no mistake. I mean, is that, does that matter in, in game, you know, the second period of game three or the first round against the Capitals? Not specifically. But, yeah, there was a lot of mental... Uh, it, mental capital that was spent that didn't have to be and expended by that group with that distraction. So that's one thing. They've had a very strange season. Uh, it hasn't been very fluid for, for, the, for the Boston Bruins. So that that could all add up. And then what really happens, too, it's not just the physical and the mental. You've been there. You've won it. It's like, okay, well, oh, we get pushed, to, comes to shove. Is it about making it happen again, or is it about – Oh, okay, we just won last year. It's not our turn. So, you know, that that's what you've seen. That's why it's so difficult to repeat. You have to battle all those things, the physical, the mental, the self-doubt, the, the self-satisfaction. Um, Boston, yeah, they'll have to prove that they're uh, beyond that. And I don't think they'll win everything this year, but I think they'll win the first round against the Capitals. You know, this is two guys talking here who I presume love Sports Illustrated, and I love it even more when they put hockey on the cover. Henrik Lundqvist is on the cover of this week's magazine. I'm pumped up about that, and I'm sure all of New York is pumped about number one seed. First time they've been the number one seed since 1994 when they won the Stanley Cup. That was the first time since 1940. You get to play an Ottawa team who was one of the two teams that you didn't have in the Eastern Conference playoffs when you made your predictions yeah. in the summer. Um, what surprised you about Ottawa? Why were they able to make the playoffs when you didn't see them as a playoff team in the in the off season? And what are they going to have to do to pull what would be a pretty huge upset over the Rangers? 
Well, a lot of questions there, but yeah, Ottawa. I thought I thought they were in complete rebuild mold. I did, I, I, I didn't think uh, in the mold of a rebuilding team. I didn't think that Paul McLean could go in and have that much of an effect, and, and he really did. Uh, they responded to his style much more so than ever. Corey Clouston made that team look skittish, uh, self doubt, uh, didn't play to their strengths. Paul McLean went in and had some offensive-minded players. Alferson at the end of, of his career, Spetsa in the prime of his career, and the youngster on the back end, and Carlson. So, you know, the, the style of play that he wanted to, to have his team play fit their skill sets much better, and, and he was a much better touch at bringing that out of them. So I, I didn't know that he could do that in such a short period of time. I didn't know they could rack up uh, points. As, it wasn't consistent because their season was an up-and-down uh, affair, but I didn't know that they could accumulate points to the degree that they would in the middle part of the season, um, and I didn't think that Craig Anderson um, would be able to be that consistent, in, in, you know, in, given what was in front of him. So all those things added up. I'm real happy for the organization, uh, great city, and and McLean is uh, is a gem, one of the best in the business as as a human. So it's great stuff. I don't know in terms of beating the New York Rangers, all the guys I just uh, mentioned uh, from a player's standpoint have to be in top form, uh, the goaltender, the, the star defenseman, and uh, the star player and, and the aging veteran and captain. All those four components have to be there, and it still might not be enough to beat Henrik Lundqvist and the New York Rangers. Yeah, you know, I've tried this theory out a couple times, and I know that a lot of people think that Chris Jury's time in New York was disappointing, and statistically it certainly was, and they didn't win a lot when he was there, so you could make that case very easily. But I have made the point, and I wonder if you agree or disagree, that Chris Jury's legacy in New York is going to be more defined by the career of Ryan Callahan, who seems to have developed into what is kind of the next Chris Drury. He's a guy who wears the C. He's a guy who blocks shots. He's a guy who gets dirty goals. He's a guy you can count on. He scored a bunch of overtime goals this year seems like every goal he scores is, is big do you think that you know ryan callahan really benefited from being able to learn in those young years from chris jury and, and follow him and do you think that that will maybe define jury's time in new york more than the injuries and, and maybe the the disappointment of not re- returning to the 40 goal season that he had in buffalo before he left no i don't think that will ever define him in new york new york is about wins and losses and what your contract was so he won't get that maybe maybe ryan callahan will give that nod and i hope that's i hope all what you said was true i can see it being plausible at at least Uh, i think that ryan callahan was always you know a heart and soul blood and cuts type of player and i think that playing for john tortorella it's the perfect system uh the coach the mindset and player skill set uh perfect match um, and wherever Ryan Callahan learned to play the game, whether it was Chris Drury uh, or along the way, he learned it the right way. And, and I think that everybody's benefiting in New York from that. Well, it sounds like you like New York, Boston, New Jersey, and Pittsburgh in a coin flip in the East, right? Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. That's what I got. Okay. Yeah. Uh, as much as I love the 4-5 seed in the East, I love it just as much in the West, Nashville and Detroit. Nashville's a really interesting team. They they seem like they're the one that's stacked up the most at the deadline and in Gostad and Kostitsin, and then being blessed to have Radulov come back. 
You know, Detroit is in a different spot this year. This is the first time in a long time they're not starting the first round at home. And I wonder if you think that that takes a little bit of the pressure on them. And is the pressure really on Nashville in this series? Well, there's pre- I mean, pressure, there's expectations everywhere. Detroit's had them for you know, two decades. Nashville's just starting to to experience them. So, so from an organizational and team standpoint, uh, I think that there's pressure on both for different reasons. And I think the interest, to me, the interesting dynamic in this series is Nashville's always held Detroit up as the model. It's the, the franchise they've tried to pattern themselves after in the Central Division. To their credit, they never whined about being in the, in, with the Red Wings Division all these years. They said it'll just make us better over the long haul. They're on the precipice. It looks like they're ready. Their, their organization made those moves, as you mentioned, so they think they're ready to, to make a big splash and, and contend for the big prize. Conversely, Detroit they went out and got Kyle Quincy, who's really just a sixth or seventh depth defenseman for them um, on their blue line. So they did, did relatively little at the trade deadline, maybe telling you where they think their team is. And I don't think it's stacked uh, per se uh, and, and ready to challenge. So can the Predators make that final leap and finally kind of vanquish uh, their, their, not their tormentors, but their, their educators. Uh, can they pass the bar that they've set as the standard? Um, and that, that, to me, is the one thing. That'll be a mental hurdle for that team to overcome because everything else tells me uh, that, that the Predators should win this series. Um, so, you know, I, I will be mildly surprised with what I said. Let's just, you know, summarize this. I'll be mildly surprised if, if Detroit wins uh, in the first round. So you're kind of in a similar spot as you were with Pittsburgh and Philly. You think Nashville, but you wouldn't be surprised if it's Detroit and you think it'll be close. Right, and for different reasons. I just think that that mental hurdle, that we, we've never been able to beat Detroit. Detroit's with Detroit. The Red Wings, the Red Wings are so good. They're so good. Can you get to the point where it's like, we're actually going to beat Detroit. We've arrived. Can Can Nashville do all that in the first round. I, everything else they've done and the way they play and, and the style of play and the depth and all that kind of stuff on paper, um, they should be favored. And uh, But Detroit is Detroit. They're proud. It's all about winning. It won't make it easy. Uh, it doesn't, but, you know, it, it might be and it probably should be Nashville's time. You know, it's incredible how many parallels we can make between the Eastern Conference playoffs and the Western Conference playoffs. The four or five matchups are really close. You know, two very good teams. It's a shame one of them has to go out in the first round. Then you need to look at the three six. And in both cases, a lot of people are going to jump to say that the six seed is the favorite over the three seed. Maybe a little bit less in the West because there's a lot of questions with Chicago's goaltending and a lot of questions on whether Jonathan Taves is going to be healthy enough to play. Do you know anything about Taves' status and what do you think about this series overall? I only know what everyone else has been reporting, that, that Taves uh, expects to play um, potentially by the first game. Uh, but but Phoenix is just tough to play against. I mean, Dave Tippett is truly one of the best coaches in the game. Uh, the, the Coyotes, uh, I, I go here more so, again, I think that Phoenix, almost like Florida making the playoffs, uh, Phoenix winning their first division uh, title ever, uh, while well, they've been out in the desert, might be their Stanley Cup. Florida finally making the playoffs, that might be enough. And you can say as a group, oh, no, we want everything. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, it's not, a certain malaise can set in. Uh, just like I thought going back to the Detroit series, I think Detroit's season was de- was defined by the streak at home. I thought they played brilliantly. Right. And once they got broken, 
they broke down a little bit, both physically and mentally, and haven't gotten it back. So Phoenix makes the wins the division. They did, they did the big thing. They had to win two games in the final weekend. They do it. Um, maybe that was, you know, if they get into a tough series against Chicago, that might be enough for uh, enough of the guys to go, oh, it's already successful. And if you have a few guys thinking like that, you're not moving on. So um, I, I agree with your assessment that the 3-6 here isn't quite as cut and dry in my mind as the 3-6 in the East. But, again, I, I, yeah, I, I'm almost at a pick em stage, um, but mostly because I respect what Dave Tippett has done with the Phoenix Coyotes. Uh, neither goaltender, Mike Smith, big body, great season. Um, again, I'm not sure that uh, he can continue. Uh, he has to prove it, right? I mean, he hasn't yeah. really ever done it in the playoffs. So, you know, that, 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 series, that series to me is a pick em, and, and it could be more entertaining series than uh, people give it credit. I don't know how many people are going to see it, uh, especially when it goes it moves up to the funky time zone in Phoenix. But um, other than that, it, it could be good hockey. The 2-7 matchup is a surprising one to me because probably going into this season, we probably both would have thought it would be reversed, that maybe St. Louis was the <laughs> 7 and St. Louis was, or San Jose was the 2. St. Louis went from firing a coach in November to almost winning the President's Trophy. They were unbeatable at home all season. They've gotten great goaltending from two different goalies. If you're St. Louis, who do you go with in the playoffs? And what does St. Louis, San Jose need to do to, to upset, upset St. Louis? Uh, I think you go with Yaroslav Halak in goal. Uh, he had a good run with Montreal. Uh, he seemed to be the one that down the stretch was a little more consistent. Um, so I think that's a, an easy place to start. Uh, San Jose, I, I'm not, you know, I really one of those teams again. Uh, I know it's West Coast. I followed LA much more closely than San Jose this year. I don't know what their ups and downs were. They always seem to have, you know, more drama and, and trauma than they should, uh, given that their personnel. Um, they righted themselves. They got in the playoffs. C- can they upset St. Louis? Uh, I, certainly. Uh, St. Louis is going to make them work uh, for every inch of ice. That's been their success. That's why the goaltenders have been successful and well protected out in front of them. Um, so you know, if the, if the San Jose Sharks aren't consistent in their work ethic, they they will go out and it will be a two over seven. But but I I, I wouldn't be necessarily all that shocked if St. Louis bowed out. Uh, in the first round. And the reason is they, they play playoff-style hockey all season long. Um, there's no upper end for them in terms of, okay, like we can find another defensive gear, and they don't have any real go-to guys offensively. So I think St. Louis is very susceptible to an upset here. The last one is the Vancouver Canucks and the Los Angeles Kings. This is not one we probably would have predicted in the beginning of the season because these were two of the favorites in the Western Conference. Vancouver has played well in the time that they've had to play without Daniel Sedin. He was in practice yesterday. There's a report today that he didn't practice today. That might be a scary thing for Vancouver. The Kings were an early cup favorite, but they have just not been able to score goals all year. Jonathan Quick, who is, not, if not the Vezina Trophy winner, the runner-up probably to Lundqvist. Mm-hmm. Can Vancouver... They could be reversed if they played... If Lundqvist played in L.A., and Quick played in New York. New York, I guess it would be on the cover of SSI this week. It would be Quick, and he'd be the best winner. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. But what do you? how do you handicap this series, and can Vancouver win it if they don't have Sedin? I mean, they've been okay. Oh, yeah, they, they, yeah. they can. Yeah. They, they can win it. Uh, they've played a lot of hockey, too. Everyone forgets. You know, you, you, 
they went as far as Boston did last year. <laughs> yeah. They just didn't win. Um, you know, so I, the Kings, to me, they, they've seemed to have found their, their game a little bit um, in the latter part of the season. Um, I, again, I, it, it's a, one of those teams, I'm not so sure they keep changing their identity on the fly, it, it seems like, with the Kings um, making you know big, big moves, big personnel moves, um, both you know addition and subtraction. Um, it, it should be a heck of a series. That, that's for sure. Um, I, I just, I just think Vancouver's too sound. Um, but again, uh, you know, Quick has been so consistent, and if uh, you know, if Vancouver gets into that hole, you know, you know, the moment Luongo gives up a weak goal, it's going to be a uh, a cry for 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 Snyder to go into goal. Right. So, if they have that controversy and and, and the Kings don't, and Quick is, is lights out. Uh, that could be a huge upset, but I really don't see it. Vancouver, Vancouver is really deep and really balanced. The sportscasters are here talking about the first round of the NHL playoffs with Darren Elliott, former goaltender at Cornell University, played for the Buffalo Sabres for two games in 1989, also played for the Los Angeles Kings and the Detroit Red Wings. I want to throw a theory out at you. My lawyer, who's a really great dude from Canada, loves hockey, sits behind me at the Sabres games, Rob Wise, he's got a son who knows as much about hockey as anyone. He's like 12 years old. I love it. Um, we were talking last night, and we kind of came – we kind of were wondering, will the first round of the NHL playoffs and maybe the playoffs in general come down to two things? One, the return or not return of the concussed players and how they play. I'm thinking of, you know, Sedin and Taves and Crosby. And then the second thing is the Russians and how the Russians play. You know, you have Melkin – who has played in an MVP level all season. You have Ovechkin, who's kind of refining that MVP season. You have Radulov, who has already been eliminated in a first-round series once this year. You know, um, it seems like there's Russians all over. These playoffs are going to have a, a big impact. And then the same thing with the concussed players. Do you think those can turn out to be two of the bigger storylines in the first round, or do you maybe have another one in mind? Well, I mean, I'll simplify it for you. Instead of putting Russian on it, I'll say star players have to be uh, contributors. Uh, if you want to be cliched, you can the best players have to be your best players. I don't care if they're Russian or not. And concussion or not, coming back from injuries, can you be effective? Um, and I don't care what the injury is. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not one of the bleeding hearts that wants to overanalyze um, concussions or I just say that it was a serious injury, and can you come back from any serious injury, knee, neck, shoulder, uh, or head? So if you're looking at it just in general terms, yeah, players returning from serious injury, can they be productive? And can your star players be productive uh, to the level they need to be and be that deciding game break? I will say that, uh, uh, yes, those two categories, I'll agree with you. If you want to put specific titles on that, you're right, Kovalchuk uh, in New Jersey. Right. Um, that there's there's a lot of uh, you know Russian uh, star players is what you're saying more than anything, and there are a lot of injuries this year that happen to be concussions and they're serious and guys are coming back and hopefully the guys can produce. All right, sportscasters finishing up. Uh, two last things. One, you pick Caps and Sharks in the preseason. Sticking with that? Boy, two weeks ago it didn't look like they're going to either one was going to be in. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, you know that would be imagine that. Uh, that that would be a long shot coming from back of the pack uh, to to make you look good in uh, in the winner's circle. That'd be one. I, I, I don't think they're the two strongest teams going in. I think I already had Washington losing in the first round, and and you know St. Louis and San Jose as a as a pick 'em. But 
probably leaning towards St. Louis because of their consistent work ethic. No, I think, I mean, legitimately, in the in the East, the four best teams are pretty easily identifiable as, as the Rangers, the Bruins, Pittsburgh, and Philly. One of those two are going to be out of it right away. Um, so, you know, you're back down. Can, can the Rangers, I, I would think that, you know, whoever comes out of that Philly-Pittsburgh series will probably represent the East. Um, and, and out West, can Vancouver get all the way there again? Uh, probably. It would probably come down to, uh, I would have to say, Vancouver and uh, Nashville, uh, I, I could see. Uh, or it could be, if that's you know, if Detroit surprises me mildly, Vancouver, Detroit. So that would be Vancouver and Pittsburgh would be probably the way I'm just quickly thumbnailing it right now. All right, last thing. Uh, I was at Lina in February, and I heard the chants, Andy Isles, Andy Isles. Was there a Darren Elliott chant back in the day, and uh, have you had a chance to see Andy Isles? And what do you think, what kind of goaltender is he, the the kind of the man at Cornell? Cornell and goaltending is like, you know, linebacker at, at my or at Penn State or something. And for those who don't know, yeah. Well, I mean, that. for me, uh, the way I talk about it, it, it does have a great tradition. It's nice to be part of it. Uh, I have seen Andy Isles. He was uh, had an excellent season. Uh, he's he, he and he he now shares. Uh, we now share the same distinction, have, having played every minute uh, of every game in a, in a Cornell season. Wow. So, yeah. So. Uh, no, I, no one had done it uh, other than me, and now Andy's done it. So the congratulations to him. That's always, that's always fun. He was more successful in terms of how far they got uh, in his season, and and he's a, he's a fun goalie to watch. Uh, he has to challenge aggressively because of his size. Um, so I, I've seen him, and, and as I tell people, my my place in in uh, Cornell history, uh, Brian Hayward and I were goaltending partners, uh, and uh, you know Ken Dryden, and, and on and on and on. Um, right now, I'm not even the best Elliot that ever played goal at Cornell. Uh, Jason Elliott was there as well, so that, that's my that's what I say to people anyway. It's just been part of part, great to be part of that tradition. Thank you very much, Darren. You can find Darren on Twitter. Anytime, guys. Yeah, find him at Darren underscore Elliot on Twitter, si.com, and all of that. Thanks a lot, Darren. Sure, you bet. Talk to you soon. Yep. All right, I have to thank Darren Elliott, Ben Ryder, and Lars Anderson for making this an awesome show today. I also want to thank my partner, Don. <laughs> I want to thank uh, a bunch of people. I um, want to thank my mom, my dad, God, <laughs> uh, Tim Tebow. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, listen, thanks again to our guests, Darren Elliott, Ben Ryder, Lars Anderson. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters. Find us on Twitter uh, at sports underscore casters. You can email us sportscasters at gmail.com. Surprise more if you don't. Uh, you can find our blog, the sportscasters.blogspot.com or the sportscasters.tumblr.com. I think I'll get our playoff predictions up there for you tonight. There you go. Uh, also, you can find all this information at our website, www.sports-casters.com. Don't forget about our new project, uh, Football Nation Presents the Sportscasters. Uh, we're pretty proud to have the number two story of the week over at Football Nation featuring our interview with Peter, Peter King. King. And you can go back there again, footballnation.com, and find out all about episode number two and who the guest is. I'm not ready to tell you. 
All right, let's move on to pick four. Uh, Don and I both went two and two last week, and it seems to show a little bit of a holding pattern for us. It seems like a lot of two and twos last few weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had one thing. We both got off to a great start with our pitchers. pitchers yeah. uh, we both picked aces, so, you know. You know, uh, Don won with Halliday and the Phillies over the Pirates. It was one to nothing, a close game. And the Pirates yeah. won both of those other games in that series. Uh, you also won your basketball game, which you hope would be a slam dunk. It was Bulls over Celtics, 93-86. You did not have Bubba Watson as the winner of the Masters. Sure didn't. And you had Oklahoma City over Miami. That didn't work out. You had a minus 10. The Heat won that game outright. Uh, I had Weaver and the Angels over the Royals. That was 5-0, but it was close all the way through a 0-0. The Angels got five runs in the eighth. Um. Tiger Woods finished 40th. I had him outside of the top 10. He was the favorite to win. So I hit that one. 40th is his worst finish ever there. Um, I missed on Union over Ferris State in the NCAA tournament. Ferris State won that game 3-1 to before losing the national championship game to Boston College, who was by far the best team. As good as Kentucky was in NCAA college basketball, Boston College was in NCAA hockey. Which was boring terribly boring yeah game. <laughs> it was never it was never, never the score you... wasn't really far away but it was it felt the whole time like ferris state was going to need some fluky crazy goal right. to and get they back didn't in get it, it. Nope. and then their the freshman stud from dubuque in the ushl uh for boston college she made a sick play and a sweet goal um i i also didn't have bubba watson so that's where my two and two is i'm 35 and 22 down to 25 and 33 hit us up with the game of the week real quick you mentioned pittsburgh uh they lead the league in ERA right now, I believe. So they had a nice start. They have a real, real solid start. But again, it's only three or four games out of a hundred. And we've said if they ever play a playoff game, we'll broadcast the show live from it. There we go. So just get there. Uh, our game of the week this week, we already said this is probably the best series in the hockey playoffs, and that's the Flyers and Penguins. Lots of offense, lots of stars. Uh, look, I said it that I'm probably not going to pick against the Penguins in any series, and I'm not going to pick against them in a game one in their home building. So give me the Penguins. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the Penguins here as well. I think they're going to get off to a good start. I think if the Flyers want to win this series, they might have to steal win one. two games in Philadelphia to tie to two and then try to steal yeah. one of the last two. I think that the brand new – the Console Energy Center is a great place, provides a really good – home ice advantage for the Penguins. And I just think they're going to get off to a good start. I, I don't think they're going to bury the Flyers, though, because I think the Flyers are going to get off to an equally good start in the in series Philly, at home yeah. in Philly. I just I like the Penguins. If we were going to pick either of the first two games, I would have picked the Penguins. So, All right, my winning pitcher this week, I'm going to go with Justin Verlander of the Tigers over the Rays. I didn't write the date down, but I believe this is a Thursday game. He, plays, he pitches against James Shields right. of the Rays, and I will uh, – Get that day for you. Uh, my winning pitcher is Matt Kane of the Giants. Just signed that new contract. was really impressive. Uh, he's going to face the Pirates at home. James McDonald's going to pitch for the Pirates. We said the Pirates are hot, but it's going to be a tough spot. Yeah, hot is relative. It's one, right. one uh, week. Friday, April 13th at 435. Side note about the Giants. Did you see Barry Zito last night? I did not. Oh, he pitched amazing four strikeouts complete game you love him italian i pitchers. love love <laughs> barry zito and i know he's been through a lot the last bunch of years so i was excited to see him start the season with a complete game shut out so props to you barry zito okay the game i picked is actually wednesday ah it's nets at 105 
All right, my host choice this week, we're going to stick with hockey because I'm so lousy at picking it during the regular season. But Capitals at the Bruins, uh, we had a little different of a, opinion on this series, I think. But game one in Boston, that place is going to be crazy. Uh, Boston, I believe, is the better team on paper. And in a game where emotion should be high, I think Boston should be able to beat the Capitals in, in their home building. It's going to be... It's going to be tough for anyone to go into Boston, but especially in game one of the playoff. I mean, places are just crazy, and, and Boston has a great crowd. That's Thursday at 7.30. Also an interesting side note, that game's on the NBC Sports Network. But, and I think we've mentioned it, every single game of this hockey playoffs, yep. if you're into watching hockey, is all on national TV. Now, they're not all on NBC or ESPN, but there's on NBC Sports, NHL Network, NHL Network, CNBC. CNBC, and NBC. So if you want to see a game, it's out there for you to check it out. So and that's do awesome. It. Yeah, check it out. That's huge. Uh, my host choice is Game One: Canucks over the Kings Wednesday, April 11th at 10:30 on the NHL Network. I, I I'm not ruling the Kings out in this series. I think I picked uh, the Canucks in seven. I'm going to give the Kings a fighting chance, but I don't see them stealing Game One in Vancouver. Maybe Game Two, not Game One. I think again. You know, it's a really tough place to play. Yeah, same reasons Vancouver. I gave, and maybe yeah. even more so for Canadian teams. They're, it's Vancouver, they're, they're crazy there. Yeah, I'd be really surprised to see Vancouver lose game one. But if they do, by the way, that's when uh, it can oh, yeah. get really tricky for them with, you know, uh, should Luongo be our goalie and all that. But I'm going to say that they'll be okay, that they're going to – they're going to win a game one at home. All right, we want a similar route for our bold predictions this week, and I'm going to take maybe the easier of the two routes, and that's I'm going to say the New Jersey Devils are up 3 nothing by Tuesday. Again, this is me playing the I don't have any respect for the Panthers card, and that's the it's exactly what they should have in the bulletin board in their locker room, but I, I don't see it. I just don't think they have the talent to, to do it, and I'm going to take New Jersey's to go up three nothing. Yeah, like Don said, we went similar directions. I'm just going to pick the Rangers over the Senators. The games are Thursday, Saturday, and Monday. Um, I th- I really like the Rangers in this series. Uh, I think that they're going to play really well at home. I love their advantage in net. I think they're going to get enough scoring. So I'm going to pick the Rangers to be up three nothing by the time we talk again next week. I was going to make a point when we were doing the playoff preview that Ryan Callahan seems like a guy Taylor made for the playoffs. I looked at his numbers this year. He's actually a minus player on that team somehow, which is unbelievable to me. He had a, he had a pretty decent year, except for he was a minus somehow. He scores big goals. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I mean, probably the Sabers would be in the playoffs if, if it wasn't Ryan for Ryan Callahan, Callahan. Wasn't in the league, sure. right? Because I mean, he stole a few points from the Sabers. Yeah, for sure. All right, um, we are going to be back next week. It's going to be an interesting show next week. One thing I can tell you is Kirk Morrison, uh, linebacker for the Buffalo Bills, is going to join us. Be interesting. We don't do a lot of athletes, but no. we're going to give Kirk a chance. He's going to be on the show next week. And like I mentioned during the book club update, we're going to have two guests on at once for the first time, I think. That should be interesting. So, yeah, so that's going to be Bill Mauschi and uh, Bob Dvorak. And chances are I'm blowing Bill's name, so I'll find out exactly <laughs> how to say it by uh, by next week. But should be an interesting show. Don't forget to check us out on Football Nation, www.footballnation.com. Let us know what you think. Let's the hip. All right.